This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. Hello, hello, and welcome to Flora. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we explore film franchises one TV season at a time. I'm your host, Gabe Green, and as always, I am here with my co-pilot, James Hamrick. How's it going, man? Pretty good. Uh, I'm feeling the wear and tear of going through full <laughs> seasons instead of just a film, but uh, it's fun. <laughs> I've been basically regretting all my life choices that I've been using this over the last week. There's only uh, eight and a half seasons to go, so... Yay! Just go, yeah, but yeah, it's not too bad. The thing is, if you're going to be drowning in some kind of material, Star Wars is just about the best place to be. Because even if it's oh. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of material to wade through with these seasons, it's still so so interesting and often so much fun. And actually, sitting down to record over it makes it more worth it because it's just so much fun to talk about. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, so we are currently and. For the next, for the rest of the foreseeable future and our our mortal lives, we'll be exploring the Star Wars saga, and we are currently in the CGI animated TV series, Star Wars: The Clone Wars. Uh, and tonight we are going through season three, Secrets Revealed, and of course uh, we are going through in chronological order, and that matters a lot in this season in particular because it's it was really really messed up for the yeah. this the second half is almost completely normal but the first half is like like you just took a puzzle and mixed things up completely randomly yes yeah, since uh there's really not much uh, behind the scenes information available we are just going to dive directly into the episodes uh, so hopefully we won't have another three-hour episode he said how naive he was Immediately uh, prior uh, to so recording first... a three-hour episode. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, first episode is Corruption. It was directed by Giancarlo Volpe. This was a, this was aired as season three, episode five, and this arc, this two-episode arc, is written by Cameron Litvak. In this one, Padme visits Satine, uh, Duchess Satine on Mandalore. Apparently, they became friends at some. Did they, did they, or did they become friends in uh the, the Duchess of Mandalore? Did, did they like meet in secret while she was being hunted for murder or something? I'm not sure. I thought I think that they're friends. Bef- they like go back before that as well, though. So Padme is visiting uh, Duchess Satine on Mandalore, uh, which is suffering from all the deprivations of war. Legal trade has been pretty much stifled, and the entire city is subsisting on this uh, black market to bring in all the resources and food and whatnot. Um, and uh, children have been poisoned by imported tea drinks. Uh, so Padme and Satine try to fight through all these layers of corruption to find the cause and the culprits behind this uh, nefarious attack or stupidity. I am not really a fan of these two episodes. Main reason is just I think they are incredibly heavy-handed and appreciated. They, they literally feel like uh, a PSA is for the FDA. <laughs> just, just for the very premise, there is no legitimate trade. All, like, all le- legitimate trade has been destroyed by the war. So in order to feed the people... We have to have a black market that could actually and smuggling that could actually get food to our food through the blockades and whatnot. Great. So what are we gonna do? Let's squash the corruption in the block and the black market. How, I, how does that work? I, mean, did, I don't. Did they even think through the implications of what they're talking about? Yes. You can make a, a make some an episode about corruption, but it is so poorly thought out 
that they, they literally tell you this is the only way people can get food. And yet the entire episode is about trying to crush the black market. That is the only thing bringing food to their people. Yeah, it's not very nuanced, is it? It's, I mean, you pretty much said it best, like at the beginning. Just it, it feels very much like a, a heavy-handed PSA. Um, and it's it's also so weird because it just it feels out of place almost with with the series. And I mean, this the series has definitely made like political statements uh, throughout, but here it's just we're pausing in the middle of a war to focus m- multiple episodes on this planet that we don't care honestly too much about and these very isolated issues there and we're repeating the exact same message again and again and again and again for like two full episodes yeah the word corruption is spoken like 50 times over these two episodes and it's just like and the thing is that this entire the entirety of the clone wars trilogy you know, the the uh, the prequel trilogy and the clone wars series is all about corruption you know the corruption of the jedi order palpatine influ- you know slowly influencing the senate and and turning the entire uh you know bringing the entirety of the republic under his power like all of that is is what this show is about it's about corruption and to then feel like they have to stop and then give us this really childish and cheesy exploration of it it feels so unnecessary because they, they've given us time and time and time again and will continue throughout the rest of the series to give us incredibly nuanced and and you know insightful arcs that deal with like actual corruption and things like that but here what we're, we're given a children's cartoon version of a war on corruption where you know all everybody who's involved in this black market is just evil and doesn't care if kids die and and it's just there's no nuance or anything to it yeah I really did like Satine in the her first arc, um, and I won't hold this against her because you know, like I said, I like before, and I like a lot of stuff that uh, happens with her character afterwards. But the writing here just makes her really obnoxious. Uh, like it's this very, it, oh, it's portrayed to be this very noble idealism, but it's it's like that idealism and naivety that just to me leads to really. Uh, annoying leadership styles and makes her character pretty annoying throughout this whole series or arc. Um, the part that uh, annoys me the most is whenever I, I forget the character's name, and yes, he does end up becoming like a traitor. Uh, but whenever uh, Padme and Satine inform him of like the sick children. And his initial inclination is, I wonder if it was death, like, it could be Death Watch poisoning us. Mm -hmm. And, like, right off, like, just instantly, uh, she jumps the gun and she's like, you seem more cared about Death Watch than you care about these dying children. (laughs) And he's like, uh, I'm just, it could be, I'm going after the root cause. It's a potential root cause. And then as soon as he leaves, she just says to Padme, like, he didn't even seem like he cared about the kid. Like, yeah. oh man, I, I just want to face bomb so hard. Like almost every line she has. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense on like other levels. Like if you are trying to sell your wares, if everyone knows they're poisonous, no one will buy them. It's, it's like if, if all these people care about is money, selling poisonous products is not a way to get money. That doesn't. That doesn't make you any money long term if all, if all your customers die. So it's. it's it's like it's trying to present them as evil and caring about, and, and only caring about money, but their their actions aren't conducive to to, to actual create you know, creating a market. 
even outside of Padme and Satine's little investigation, that they would, they would get caught so quickly. It's just, yeah, this episode brought out the Ron Swanson. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, some of my frustration might be my inner libertarian, but uh, I, I I think this is genuinely poor writing either way. Uh, but honestly, it, it's beyond the politics, though. Um, there are just other reasons why I'm not really a fan of this. And we've gotten to the point to where, you know, just saying it's a kid's show, for me with this show is no longer an excuse. Okay, this, yeah, by this season onward, this is not a kid's show and kids probably shouldn't watch it at least you're under a certain age yeah i can say that for like you know almost for two reasons because it does get very dark and very violent but also i feel like they've always handled these kind of topics in very mature uh and nuanced way like the the way they handle politics is actually really interesting and you can follow it everything makes mostly um, complete sense and so here when everything's toned down one of my problems here is that there seems to be a, almost no infrastructure or bureaucracy in all of Mandalore like it seems like there's like four people total running this government and you can just walk in to see your auntie Satine mm-hmm. and you can just walk in like anybody off the street can walk in and see that other guy and Satine can just say, hey, take me to that dock that might be incredibly dangerous. I'll need at least three guards <laughs> and I run this whole plan. Like, it just, it feels so small. And like, these little kids can just run into what is essentially like the Oval Office and say, hey, we're going to go investigate. And like, they're undercovering. That's because Corky is special. Man, what a name too. Yeah. Uh, but before we, before we get to that episode, I, I, I do like the finale of this epi- the, the first episode where they finally find the docks and, and the, the officer's like, my t- I run a tight ship. No one in my uh, in my squadron is, is uh, corrupt. <laughs> and then the, when his two guards attack, he just like completely takes both of them out and draws a pistol and runs and starts shooting everyone. Uh, I, I kind of want a uh, ep- an episode about his character like as a private detective or something something he seemed pretty fun yeah he was really cool and i i do enjoy i also really like the uh, the royal guards the way they fight with their shields and their uh batons oh that was really like, cool the, the, like the action sequence is, is really cool even if i don't care for the rest of the episode i think it, it ends pretty well yeah and there's a lot of really cool aesthetic like you know seeing the city thriving and all of the boxy shapes it was cool going out into the desert areas and you just kind of see the remnants of these popping up through the sand so I, I like the last action scene a lot. Like I I like how as soon as the first blaster is drawn, it just turns into a really cool shootout really quickly. Uh, just real quick, I really like the uh, the importer character Sadiq. Oh, the the guy in the chair who's okay. yeah. I'll have to narrow that down. <laughs> and then she just stares and is like, okay, okay, no problem. Uh, Great accent. He was I, love, fun. I love that kind of very yeah rough london accent kind of thing were you also annoyed at the very end like because i i do like like the captain there were you agreeing with him when he's like this this is evidence and she's like burn it down oh yeah again yeah going back to her kind of very pompous uh idealism like that that goes completely beyond any reason to just just basically virtue signaling. Yeah, it's like, okay, congratulations. You got a really cool, like, symbolic visual. But for real, that was evidence. Oh. Yeah. Uh, so next episode is The Academy, also directed by Giancarlo Volpe. In this one, Ahsoka is sent to Mandalore to teach the young and upcoming leaders about corruption and good leadership. And four cadets take her message to heart and discover a secret plot to overthrow Satine. 
And this one has a lot of the same problems from the previous one. Uh, beyond the you know, Nancy Drew Hardy boys, which is kind of cheesy. It it doesn't make much sense. Like, why are they sending a Jedi to Mandalore? Like, are there, is, are there no qualified teachers on the entire planet of Mandalore? And to, it's also, it's a neutral system. You know, and her last arc in the series was all about her like opposition to the Jedi and how they like you're supposed to be peacekeepers. Do you not see the irony in that you're like it seemed like, you know, while she and Obi-Wan were eventually able to become friendly, like it's still there's still like that philosophical opposition she has with the state of the order. And now she, as the leader, is like, all right, come on, Jedi, come teach our youth. And, and why is Ahsoka someone who's spent an entire, you know, her entire life in, like, an ideological commune qualified to teach on, like, Republican government or yeah. mon- monarchical <laughs> government or whatever the heck they have there? Like, it's, it, it's, it's kind of like a nonsensical plotting just to put characters where they need to be for the episode to happen. And her lessons are... Oh! <laughs> it's, it's like... Pretty, it's it's what you say to your six year old when they ask what does corruption mean? It's like corruption is bad. It's when like you even have these students who are supposedly so when a leader like cares more about money than the good of their people. <laughs> oh wow! And like you have the the classroom, like so corruption is about money. Like wh- are you six years old? Like have you never even heard of these? <laughs> ideas before and then you know the second she says it's up to pretty much like that classic PSA thing like it's up to you to spot corruption in your authorities and challenge your leadership and they kind of have that group stare with like huh you know like we're gonna do <laughs> something it's just so cheesy yeah and so they, they go off and start investigating uh, food shortage which I, I, I really do not understand what's happening here like so there's no food shortage. The the uh, the prime minister, what's or what's that? What's called? I don't know. The, basically, prime minister. The, uh, the you know the the leader guy is hiding food, even though there's a famine, which means food would be valuable and you could sell it at an inflated price. But he's just put locking it in a storage room. Why would you do that? What, like, what, what good is that doing anyway? It's not, it's not doing him good. It's not doing the people good. It's like I I don't understand why he's just hiding food. And it's never explained. And also, in the middle but of this... But they try to explain it, though. And that's what's so frustrating. He's like, uh, I'm acting on behalf of the good of my people. And she's like, you're acting on behalf of the good of yourself. He's like, what? is he going there late at night for, like, these late night five-course five, like, five <laughs> course meals? I don't understand. Yeah. And on top of that, they shoehorn in a coup. Like, he's... Like, this part... Like, the first part makes no sense. This part even makes even less sense. To where, like... They never explain why he's trying to overthrow Satine. Like, we never get the, you know, the different... What is what is the difference in their ideologies and ruling systems? Like, why does he feel like he would be a more qualified leader? And why is he trying to overthrow her? Like, what is he... What is he trying to... What is his end goal in overthrowing her government? We're never told. Also, if... And then we're told that Satine knew the coup was coming, but she didn't tell anyone. She just relied on her, you know her nephew her nephew to discover it all and to tell ahsoka so that she could come rescue her which in reality no one would have ever found anything and nothing would have happened <laughs> it just it, it like there's so many layers of bad plotting and just incoherent ideologies being thrown around here and it's so frustrating considering like this show has so many times before like really pitted two different ideologies at each other 
in a fairly balanced way. And here it's just completely gone. And again, I think my, my complaint about this just being such a, a bare government with no actual like sort of infrastructure or bureaucracy, even more clear where it's literally, we're seeing two people like in a handful of guards. And this is like the centralized power of the entire <laughs> planet. Apparently it takes five men to, to throw a coup. Yeah, <laughs> it's, well, it should be like literally you get about 10 people together and you could be the next president, really. Yep. And it, to me, like what it felt like was almost like a stage play, like and not in a good way <laughs> where it's like we've got a handful of actors. So uh, let's see what we can do. And the, ac- and the action, like when everything finally comes down is really bad. Like it's like super slow and lumbering, like feels like guards are kind of standing around waiting to to be hit, even though they have guns and. And like these kids that are tied up are taking down train warriors that we know are perfectly capable of hand-to-hand combat. And it's crazy because this episode is directed by the same guy who directed the previous episode, which had really, really solid action. So it's really odd this one is so kind of slow and lumbering. All right, um, so next episode is Assassin, directed by Kyle Dunleavy and written by Katie Lucas and Druzy Greenberg. And this one... Ahsoka is signed a break from field work and she starts to experience visions of Padme being assassinated by Aura Singh. So she joins Padme's delegation to a refugee conference on Alderaan to provide extra protection as the visions uh, get more and more intense. I think this is a fun little episode. Uh, I, I do I do like seeing um, Ahsoka and Padme's friendship. It's just, you know, kind of an- another fun character dynamic. I like kind of the mutual respect they have for each other. And, uh, and, it's weird to see kind of like a, a, a fairly intellectual and level-headed group at our center because we usually have Anakin who's just like, you know, go, 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 shoot first, ask questions later. So you, so you have two characters that are – I mean, and when Ahsoka's with Anakin, you know, she kind of falls into his influence. But when she's with other characters like Padme, she's kind of inspired by her to be more thoughtful and more level-headed. Um, so I, I do I do like, you know, seeing how – Ahsoka was able to, you know, become a far more, <laughs> basically a better character than Anakin through these other relationships and friendships that, that kept her from going, you know, to becoming totally a clone of Anakin. She, you know, she has, she has the, she has that kind of courage and daring from Anakin, but she has that balance and thoughtfulness from people like Plo Koon and Obi-Wan and Padme. Yeah. And I also think like this is this far in, you know, this is now a testament to to her strength as a character where you can separate her from the master Padawan relationship for an episode and and she can really, you know, be the lead. Although she's she's been the lead before and we've seen her in different situations before. Like, I mean, we talked on the last season with her and uh, Master Sanubi. Uh, but again, it's just the fact that they seem com- like increasingly more comfortable in giving a Ahsoka-centric story sometimes pulling obi-wan and anakin even out of it i think is just it proves how much her character has come and i do like the uh, the look we get into the the entire concept of jedi premonitions which we got a bit of in episode three um but i, I like how they talk about you know they're not they're at f- first off they're very unclear you know, they're kind of just like vague feelings and impressions but also they might not even be real like they, they could be there's like when she goes and talks to yoda and he's basically you know, try, telling her to, she has to, you know, try to dive deeper into them and explore them, but but also n- not to trust them because they're the entire concept of prophecy is so vague and uh, unclear. And I think his advice here is a lot better than what he gave to Anakin, which is basically, oh, someone you love is going to die. Well, you got to learn not to love him. 
<laughs> and here he actually gives her uh you know advice that you know helps her in her situation yeah and it, with with his advice to anakin it feels almost like he's not even addressing the idea of prophecy he's almost just using this as a platform to to address something he's worried about in anakin which is his attachment um and it almost feels like the original trilogy is like Yoda learning from his lessons where even though I think, you know, he's wrong in a lot of the things he says to Luke, whenever Luke is acting, you know, in the moment based on these reactions, you do hear things like, you know, like, this may happen, yes, but we don't know, like always in motion the future is and he's pretty much warning him against gut reactions to these kind of premonitions and things yeah, like that. It could be your actions that, that caused the future to happen in the first place. Yeah. Um, but what I, what I really like about this episode is just the overall paranoia they're able to create. Like the visions are super creepy and intense and it's, it, and you really never know like when is the other shoe going to drop? Like you, you know, Aris things out there, you know, she's trying to kill her, but you don't, don't know when and where she's going to strike. So they, they're able to create some really cool sequences. Like when Padme is giving the speech, just where the camera just kind of moving around and Ahsoka's like watching, trying to figure out what match her visions with the setting and you see kind of aura scene going into place. There's some really intense and cool sequences. And it, felt, it just feels really creative. Like the way that whole scene looks and moves. Um, I almost wish that that, that was an idea that was, that was explored even more with Ahsoka. Um, I feel like you could really mine some cool stuff from that. Like considering Anakin's issues with, with premonitions and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just a you know, fun little single episode. Uh, next episode is Arc Troopers, directed by Kyle Dunleavy and written by Cameron Litvak. On uh, this one, Anakin, Obi-Wan, and Shock T gather to defend the cloning facilities on Kamino from an invasion by Grievous and Ventress. And we also, this episode also marks the return of Fives and Echo. One thing that I find really cool is how the the clones really take this attack personally like they they camino really is home for them like there, there's something it feels like it's something like beyond programming like this like it, like their kind of universal humanity is coming together you know to, to this is their home and they're going to defend it and they really take this battle feels so much more personal for them than anything we've seen before yeah and you hear that from the dialogue like both in like the actual conversational scenes as well as just on the field like it feels like there's a a fervor in defending this um, and the ships themselves, I really like the design. It, they're called Trident Drill Ships. They, they really look like the uh, the Nautilus from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. But they also like swim like squids and then they can jump out of the water and crawl up over the over the um, the, com- the comedian cities. It's just a really cool design that's used in a lot of unique ways throughout the episode. Yeah, visually speaking, this is one of the coolest of this season to me. Uh, we get those huge like um, wide angle shots of the whole of Camino, like the city um, of just the things jumping out of the water and climbing up. You've got like multiples of them on screen. It's just, it looks really cool. Uh, and something that I liked about this episode is I don't remember how often we got to see this before, but we really get to see uh, Grievous and Asajj interact more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you it, like, they're both kind of in that position of, apprentice to dooku and you see like the spark of rivalry there like which ends up being yeah. much more than a spark but uh i don't know i've always liked the bickering that happens from the enemy side in, in star wars and so for these two people who are both pretty much in the same position be charged with like leading this new attack was a uh, was cool to see yeah they're both trying to impress daddy 
And speaking of the clones, uh, we get uh, 99 back again. Mm. And he's just as wonderful as ever. And we also lose 99. And uh, this dumb show making me cry. It's yeah, it's it's really great to see him again. You know, just his heart and how you know he he may not have been trained as a soldier. He may not have had the the ability to you know go out there as a clone warrior, but he really he has all the programming. You know, he knows he's just like on the inside. He's just like anyone anyone else there, and he wants to defend his home just as much as anyone else. And you see how how he can kind of I guess you know. Being in this position where he's always there, getting to watch all these clones kind of come and go, he's got a lot more perspective than than the other ones. Um, and yeah, he's just you know a great little great mentor figure, and it's really sad seeing him go. And the way the all the other guys kind of rally around him, he's kind of like the the uncle to all of them. Yeah, that's one of the things that I really like about the show is that it it really cares about like just these side characters that kind of come and go between you know, sometimes separated by several episodes. Because when you really think about it, you know, how often do we, do we actually see, like, Heavy and Fives and, uh, you know, these kind of clones. But, like, whenever we see them, it feels like it means something. Um, and the episodes usually give them something really cool to do. And, and yeah, the, I remember the first time I had seen this episode, I was shocked that they would kill 99. I'm like, man, I, you don't introduce, like, arguably the most lovable character ever and kill him the second episode he's in. This is... It was rough to watch. Yeah. One of the cool things that I liked about this episode as well um, was that Shock T was there, you know, like defending against the attack kind of because, you know, previous episodes would put her there because she seems to be heavily involved with the training of the clones. Yeah, that, that was a cool uh, connection to, uh, was it? Uh, clone clone cadets? cadets? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think they, they really improved the, uh, the choreography for the lightsaber fights. I think this one is really... Uh, it looks really good. And, oh, Anakin against Ventresses? Yeah. Yeah, that one's awesome. Oh, gosh. When Ventress, like, f- picks the clone up with a force and pulls him onto her lightsaber and then kisses him. It's like, yeah, she's a kid show. <laughs> she's so weird, but, man, they really made a, a really cool character with her. Yeah. In that last fight, whenever they take it outside and you got these huge angles that are, like, just pulled back from the action, we're just seeing this huge landscape shot with these little, like, colors just banging at each other mm. it just it's really cool cinematography and i like how it ends with uh when uh she force grabs the vial the vial of dna but rex catches it and then all the clones kind of just silently come in around her like this is their home you better run now and her exit's cool too where it's you know you almost get you almost start to see that so much of what she's doing is just like this show that she's putting on where she's like leaving in this very cocky manner um, like like this show person and then as soon as she lands in the ship you just see like her entire demeanor just completely changes uh, I'm sure partly because she had to be rescued by Grievous but you know she failed in her mission and so it it feels like she's got this much scarier persona she creates like on the battlefield yeah uh, so next episode is Sphere of Influence directed by Kyle Dunleavy and written by Katie Lucas and this one, uh, Chairman Papanoida, the leader of Pantora. His daughters are kidnapped by bounty hunters who are they believe are working for the Trade Federation who is currently blockading his homeworld. Um, just, re- again, really funny uh, side note is that Chairman Papanoida is who George Lucas played in his um, pa- in his uh, 
cameo in Revenge of the Sith and his daughter, one of his daughters, the one with that huge cowl thing, uh, it was played by Katie Lucas. And she wrote this episode. This, was, this one was really cool to see all the kind of the political maneuvering that the separatists would do with the trade. Like the Trade Federation, for some reason, is still allowed to function, <laughs> like after all they've done. And so they they kind of they will come in and blockade a planet and you know pretend it's legal, which would then you know, it's perfectly legal. Yeah, which would try to and slowly try to force the uh, the planet to side with the separate separatists, you know, through this kind of persecution. But then when it, if if it's actually called out and they like when they it's, it's found out that they were you know engaging in kidnapping and this kind of political blackmail they just oh well what why would you do this they, they, they just turn on to the on whoever it was in this case it was a uh, sipkin a they basically just throw whoever the, the most convenient person under the bus so they can kind of keep operating and say oh it was all them newt gunray's influence spread far further than we could have anticipated yeah and i i love how chuchi's able you know after they they, they find the, the second daughter on board his flagship She's able to instead of there, you know, you kind of expect to have another cool action scene, but she's able to basically talk her way out by you know, saying, you know, it, this I if I could launch an investigation against you, but if you pull off your blockade, you know, we'll we'll just forget it. And so they kind of she's able to you know negotiate her way out instead of fighting her, which is pretty cool. Really nice to see uh, Senator Chuchi again. Yeah, I was going to say it. It really shows how much she's grown since then. You know, like one of the last moments uh, of her episode and or of her and trespass where she's asking obi-wan to do her job and pretty much forced to do it herself and now she seems like a completely capable political leader um i think there's some point in the episode where it's kind of mentioned that the events between season two and three are like a year apart i think uh, and so yeah between that time uh even beyond that scene just the opening with her her discussions um, in the Senate, she feels like a much more mature character now. Mm -hmm. And the other side of the story is uh, Papanoida and his son going to uh, Tatooine to investigate Greedo, who who uh, was one of the kidnappers. And I, I just like these guys. How there's just like just whatever happens, they're gonna go and get it done. Like they look like these really pompous uh, aristocrats, but then when they finally find him, they get into this really kind of old western gunfight in the bar, and he's like dual wielding pistols and whatnot. Yeah, that was all. Like the the pistols come out like the second things go down. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I like how capable he is, uh, just even in investigating uh, when his son's kind of berating him, like, "Oh, well, now we're captured." And instantly he puts the guy in the headlock and it's like, you know, we're going to talk to Jabba now. Oh, yeah. Uh, he's just such a cool, like that whole family, you know, even at the very end when it's it's the daughter who ends up getting the last shot. Like it's just a, it's a family of people who are willing to get their hands dirty. They're, uh, they're really cool. And those accents. <laughs> yeah. On the other side though, too, like on the, uh, the Federation ship, uh, I thought it was really cool being back there, you know, I think for the first time, you know, since Phantom Menace, seeing all the familiar designs of like oh, yeah. that room that they're hiding in looks like the exact same room that they're in at the very beginning of Phantom Menace. Uh, and Ahsoka is just really cool in that scene too. Like how quickly she's able to hide and think on her feet and like float um, Chuchi up with the force. Like 
and completely avoid all detection. Another character you should mention is the, this one has the introduction of uh, Inspector Tandivo. And it's just weird. Does this guy look a lot like Matthew Broderick? Hmm. Uh, it's weird. I always thought he kind of looked like Peter Lorre. Who's that? Uh, the the German from um, Arsenic and Old Lace. Oh. Always kind of huh. a hunched over kind of character. Yeah, I can see that too. Hmm. Either way, he's an idiot. <laughs> so, <laughs> I really don't understand the point of his character. Like either in this episode or the next. He just... It feels like they build him up as like he's gonna annoy you, but he's gonna get the job done. But really, he's just kind of like more of an obstruction to all the people who shouldn't be working, but are actually working to get things done. I actually think he's a bit more interesting in uh in the second in the um, his next appearance, which we'll talk about later. Um, that also had, I guess, the chronological introduction of Greedo into the series. Oh uh, yeah, it's just weird hearing him speak Galactic Basic, but yeah, I guess that's kind of annoying. Yeah, I guess. They didn't think kids would want to read subtitles, but oh well. Yeah, kids aren't watching the show, or they shouldn't be watching the show anyway. Uh, next episode is Evil Plans, directed by Brian Kalen O'Connell. And this arc is written by Steve Mitchell and Craig Van Sickle. So a while out shopping for Jogan Fruit, C-3PO and R2-D2 are captured and tortured for information by Cad Bane. Uh, so he can get the, the floor plans to the Senate building. Um, and all the while, Anakin and Padme are party planning back at the apartment and this episode sucks all right next episode yeah oh dear this this episode is really 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 bad yeah it's like this one isn't even one that that i have strong feelings on one way or the other like i I mean i I, I can tell that uh i mean i dislike it more than i like it but it, it just feels like such a filler episode where it this entire we di- we didn't need an episode over this, and I'm so glad that you know people watching this series chronologically don't have this as the introduction to Cad Bane. No, it, it wouldn't have been. Oh this. wait, there, no, there, sorry, been, I'm looking at my notes. Whoops. In a, in a, the next one would have been hostage. Yeah, yeah it would, sorry, I'm looking ahead. Yeah, so but like, why are we watching an episode about party planning? I don't care about party planning. This is the Clone Wars. And also, like, the entire thing is relying on R2 acting completely out of character because everything we know, the, the singular thing we know about R2-D2 as a character is that he's reliable and he will stick to his mission and he will get the job done. And they and they, they break that because here he's going off and, like, he's completely abandoning his mission to go into a spa while C-3PO is captured and tortured and he never realized, like, this, it, like, he's, he's the straight man of, the, of this group and they're turning him to just a complete idiot and doing to doing something completely against his character, and then you know, like C three PO giving up R two R two D two like to be tortured. Like we we know that he's he's you know he C three PO is an idiot, but I I don't like you know him just you know, like turning over his lifelong buddy just kind of on at the drop of a hat. Yeah, it feels very much like to me. I almost just want to pretend that that doesn't happen because it really does feel like it undermines their whole relationship where. You know, even though he will, like, walk his separate ways like he did in Tatooine um, in A New Hope, you still feel like these these are the two guys who've been through it all together and they're going to continue to be through it all. And, like, that moment just feels so, like, at odds with everything else the series has shown with them. And, yeah, like, it's, it's weird because were C-3PO the one to go in there and, like, be tempted by all that it's kind of in line yeah. with this character you know like the 
I mean, the for him getting like the little cleaning at the beginning of A New Hope. Like this is just, it seems like he's the character who loves Pamper when he can get it. Yeah. <laughs> just, I don't understand most of the decisions made in this episode. Yeah, the whole episode is just so cutesy and silly. Um, despite having a whole lot of torture <laughs> going on. Just got to go get the fruit though. Yeah. And it doesn't, and as you said, this episode is so completely unnecessary. Like, we don't need to know how Cad Bane got the floor plans of the Senate. Like, when they showed the episode Hostage Crisis at the end of season one, I never once thought, wait, how did he know the floor plans of the Senate building? It's, like, it's, it's such a non-issue. And it's, it's an entire episode about that bound up in all this kind of just cutesy soap opera drama. Yeah. And in the end, to add insult to injury, when they finally get the fruit... It's literally like these four tiny little fruit stacked up on top of this giant cake, and they call it Jogan fruit cake. It's just, ugh, just I, I already, I really hate it. And their their whole explanation is like, you know how particular these guys are, like really. Yeah, like they, they don't even, didn't even have the dignity to like you know cut it up and use it as a garnish or anything. They just like stacked them on top. Ugh. All right. <laughs> So uh, next episode is Hostage Crisis, uh, directed by Giancarlo Volpe. On this one, Cad Bane's crew infiltrates the Senate, uh, taking Padme, Bail Organa, and other senators hostage as they negotiate with Palpatine, uh, Palpatine, with Palpatine uh, for the release of Zero the Hut. And meanwhile, Anakin is unarmed uh, and he's trying to sneak around the building, basically diehard style, to free them. Uh, I really love the opening of this one. Where they they, yes. they just land the, bold as brass on there and uh, take out the entire guard, uh, the entire uh, guard shift, and then this the whole thing is so freaking brutal. Like the way the way they get sniped as he's like he's standing there talking to them, and one of them just gets a bolt to the head, and he breaks one of their neck. And then when they go in, he throws a bomb into the into the kind of the mess hall and closes the door. And as the wounded one comes out, she just like shoots him point blank range. It's like really really brutal. Yeah, and in true cinematic fashion, Cad throws a grenade in there and just walks away and doesn't bother looking. Oh yeah, <laughs> is it just me, or is a uh, in I guess the 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 inside or not the inciting incident, but the the scene that robs Anakin of his lightsaber is the dialogue there not just some true George Lucas dialogue? Yeah, where it's just saying like, I thought our love was more important than yeah. It- really forcing conflict where it doesn't need to be yeah honestly the the more this ep- or the more the series like forces anakin and padme together and tries to create these issues it falls flat for me um and again like it feels like all of their issues are very contrived issues just to give this episode a hook like uh oh now anakin doesn't have his lightsaber Mm. And the whole I don't understand the whole symbolism of handing her the lightsaber that she's obviously just going to hand right back to him as he leaves. Yeah, it's it's weird. Like, especially considering how much like how important that is supposed to be that even just in the moment, like when he says, you know, this lightsaber is my life and he gives it to her. And like instantly after that, he just says, now, do you believe me? Like <laughs> you handed her a lightsaber. <laughs> OK. Um, overall, this episode is, is kind of fun. You know, it, it's diehard. Uh, I like where, the way Anakin's kind of sneaky around, like force, kind of influencing the weak way's mind with the force to think that he's already checked the levels. Like little things like that are kind of fun. Uh, however, it feels like he gets taken out way too easily. Like the the little two foot tall fish dude is the one who t- takes him out. It's like seriously, he's been so. Um, he's he's been through all this war 
and it's a two foot high fish guy that is able to take him down that easily. Uh, yeah, doesn't feel size. Right. Judge him by his size, do you? Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in this case, yes. Um, one thing I thought was cool though was how they actually determined that he had no lightsabers. Just looking at the droid and seeing like, huh, no lightsaber slashes. Like, um, that was a cool little detail. Mm. This is one of those episodes though where the the score actually stuck out to me. Uh, there are moments here where it feels like it's really similar to like Zimmer's work in the in the Dark Knight trilogy. Especially it, there are times where I'm like, this just sounds like the Dark Knight climax music. But uh, I don't it felt like it was really able to like help sell the tension as the uh, as the climax is coming together. Yeah, I do like the way they just kind of take over and they're going back and forth between like going talking to. Palpatine, you know, commandeering his his whole system, and he he he's trapped in there as well. Um, so it ends up the whole thing is is there so that they can uh, free Zero, which unfortunately means we get Zero. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, you'll be pleased soon enough. Yes, well, that that has its issues as well. Um, and I think this whole episode just feels like it really just rushes through the entire conflict. Um. And I don't understand the ending. Like they set up the bombs and say, "This is insurance. If you try to stop us as we're walking, as we're leaving the planet, the bombs will go off and kill the senators." Cool, that's a great plan. However, they're literally like a mile away, and he goes to blow it all up, which means that, you know they're still on planet. And if they if they literally if they kill you know a half dozen senators, do they do they expect that they're not going to be hunted down? Like, what? It doesn't make any sense. Also. If they were hired by the Hut clan to get Zero, why would they kill like six or seven senators to make Zero happy? They don't care about Zero. And that would that would spark, you know, a war. I mean, if it, he's Zero's obviously a Hut, so it's not going to be very hard to track this this heist back to the Hut clan. So and if they're literally walking into the Senate building and murdering senators, do they think that they're going to be able to survive very long with yeah, it makes no sense, especially with the next episode where it very clearly acknowledges that there's still like that loose kind of like alliance between the Republic and the Huts with uh I forget the or uh Voss Voss's character when he's there. Uh and Obi-Wan reminds him say, uh, saying, you know, the Huts are still our allies. Like yeah, that that's not the case, you know, where uh where Cad getting his way. Yeah, it, like that, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, so it, it's a fun little episode. It just get, we have to have zero and some really weird logical things. Next episode is Hunt for Zero, directed by Stuart Lee. Uh, in this one, Obi-Wan and the unorthodox Jedi Master Quinlan Voss pursue Zero to the Hut homeworld, now Hutta. And meanwhile, the Huts and Zero are working through a bunch of conspiracies of their own. If this weren't Zero, I might actually like his his arc here, where he he's trying to basically blackmail the entire Hut uh, clan uh, with a whole list of all their dirty secrets and whatnot. So, like, they, if he if they kill him, he'll send it all to send. Like, it would be fun if he wasn't such a like utterly deplorable character <laughs> that you just hate watching. It's really weird. Where, like you said, there's there, there's cool ideas. The idea of like that list is an interesting one <laughs> but you're just really kind of rooting for all the other huts this whole time like all right let's let's figure out how to how to get the better of zero and, and put this whole ordeal behind us mm-hmm. and i think the, the concept of a hut council is kind of cool 
I'm, they're all kind of loosely allied together. Yeah, my only issue with that is I think they went a little heavy-handed with the visual oh, references to <laughs> other monsters. Oh, it's ridiculous. So yeah, Quin- Quinlan Voss could have been a really cool character. Like he, they, he's just kind of Anakin in this with some hippie tendencies. Like, like they literally give him the quote, you know, well, that's just your opinion, man. And that's basically his only characterization through this entire episode other than be basically, you know, being kind of the Anakin surrogate of the other careless one who always just fights first, thinks later. Uh, I think it would have been cool to have, you know, that kind of hippie Jedi who kind of, you know, just takes joy in the moment and does whatever he feels like. That could have been cool. I don't I don't think they do a lot with it. And I, I don't understand why Obi-Wan is so antagonistic to Voss. Like, he deals with this day in and day out with Anakin. Why is he so mad now that, that, that Voss is doing it? Yeah, this is really weird. Looking through your notes, I feel like we've, we've all, we've both brought almost the exact same takeaways from this episode uh, down to the, did they just quote the Big Lebowski? <laughs> uh, yeah, with this character, it, it reminded me of, you know, there's so many moments with Obi-Wan in the prequels where he's like, like oh, I don't mind Flyboy, you're doing a suicide. Like, it's, he can get upset, but it's almost always like this playful upset, um, you know, especially in the opening of Revenge of the Sith. But here, he just seems like genuinely put off by this whole thing. Like, oh, come on. I've got to do this. It's, it's, it is weird that he's this. Maybe maybe it seems you know, like he, he would expect more from a master. But at the same time, even though Anakin doesn't have the master distinction, between this and Revenge of the Sith, it seems like Obi-Wan definitely has kind of come to look at Anakin as, a, as more of like an equal on the battlefield. And just an equal in peers. And so for him to just meet this, or not, I guess not meet, but for him to work with this other guy and who's honestly probably even slightly less reckless than Anakin. Like, I, I don't really understand the frustration other than, you and, know, and, and more competent, I would say. Like, yeah. And he has his skill. I think his, his skill where he can touch something and sense it's past is really cool. Yeah. I was going to say, I don't think we'd ever seen that in star Wars. Have we? No, I think it's, I think it's kind of unique to him. That's kind of cool. And it's cool, you know, to to have like that Native American um, influence and then translate like real life tracking skills into the into Star Wars and, and implement that with the force. Yeah. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Um, on the more uncomfortable side, was was it just was it weird to you how sensual that, that, da- that yeah. dance was? Yeah, that's that's exactly what I was thinking. I was like. You know, we've seen stuff semi-similar to this before, but anytime it's ever approached this, like, level of, like, racy, it's almost been exclusively limited to the background. Whereas here, like, I feel like we're about to just transition and anything goes from Temple of Doom, like, at the, the drop of that, a that's hat. That's what it is. They, they, they literally model that entire sequence after temp- the, that dance sequence in Temple of Doom. I was about to say, like, it felt very similar. Uh, but, yeah, like, I mean, the outfits... The actual day, like it felt, you know, I mean, I guess we keep saying it, you know, this isn't a kid's show, but uh, <laughs> oh, gosh. And, and for even, a different reason this time. And even worse, uh, zero and size snoodle smooching is so oh, my. violating and wrong. <laughs> Going to the top lip and then the bottom. Oh my gosh, that was awful. I need to have my brain washed. <laughs> um, and then speaking of being made uncomfortable, honestly, Zero's mama oh, makes me uncomfortable. 
just watching the, that. The, there are a lot of very wrong things in the show. Yeah, I, you know, Zero and Sai Sunil's kissing and Mama the Hut are kind of on the same level. Like she's this just giant blubbery mass who has a base. It's actually a woman's voice, but it sounds like a man's voice uh, with like these like sl- this sludge drip coming down over her. And these slugs crawling. It's like the starfish type slug things all over her giant mass. And and it's honestly, you know, like Star Star Wars has used like very very obvious uh, kind of stereotypes. It was weird having this kind of be this kind of stereotype used for a hut. Like this very like backwoods kind of like New Orleans kind of character like in this swampland for for a hut i never really got that vibe from them and i mean i guess you know you can you can have diversity like i like diversity down to like the specific race and showing that you know not every single twi'lek has to speak french like and bringing that over here but it's, it's just weird to me like the, her, both her and sias noodles feel like they're kind of going, going for this like really extreme uh, just you know white trash kind of thing like just down to the accents and the way they the, the kind of the, the vernacular it just it feels so exaggerated and so like in a way that just doesn't mesh with star wars like a french accent fine but you know taking taking this very specific kind of subculture and then re- exaggerating it and like where she's like size noodles is mad that he left her and the mom is upset because no one ever sends her Christmas cards. Like I, I don't want this in star Wars. And especially when these are the huts, the most power, one of the most powerful criminal organizations of the universe. And their matriarch is just this, this mother who's mad that no one ever visits her. Yeah. You know, for the most, like most of the time with this show, I'm very like, I love, expanding on like characters that either were briefly seen or even just like mentioned, you know, like, uh, you know, sold her to, or bought her from Gardula the Hut. Like you get lines like that, but one of, I guess the bad side effects that really happens, but when it does is unfortunate is when it's like, wow, I like my imagination <laughs> better <laughs> than reality now. Yeah. Um, even though I absolutely loathe the characterization of Sai Snoodles, she, I will forever be grateful to her for <laughs> what she does to Zero the Hut. It's it's a rather disturbing scene, but I I am very satisfied watching his dead body fall down. And I think that the the actual finale of this episode is actually really good. Oh yeah, down from like him being fooled, and it's not one of those like we hear the blast and go off screen. Like we see just her shoot him a couple times. And then walk away like it's no big deal. Um, and then this subsequent battle between Obi-Wan and Quinlan versus Cad Bane is really cool. Yeah, the whole it's a really great running fight. They're jumping at these rock pillars. And you, you, I love how they can make it feel like Cad Bane could actually take on these two fully capable Jedi Masters without, without making either side look weak or incompetent. Like, obviously... Voss and, and uh, Obi-Wan don't have the same rapport and uh, ability to kind of predict each other's moves that Anakin and like if it had been Anakin and Kenobi, they probably would have gotten him. But it's not like they're it's not like either one of these guys is incompetent or getting in the other's ways. Like he's able Bane is able to just use his gadgets to be able to see a bit one step ahead of them. And he, I love how he, throughout the fight, he's kind of slowly losing his gadgets and always kind of escaping by the skin of his teeth till the, and there's that moment where he uh, gets a lightsaber which is really cool 
even though he obviously he's no match for a Jedi with it. But just, just the way the fight moves and the, you know some of them are flying and jumping and going from pillar to pillar, it, it's really easy to kind of lose your sense of geography and lose the sense of momentum when you have a running fight like this. But it, it's able to just build and build and build in a in a believable way that never never feels like it's cheating. Yeah, and it, I think it's helped out by the setting because I think it, the location and atmosphere there it also is just really cool. I remember whenever I got to this episode, the first time I'd seen through it, I, like I was just living Clone Wars at this point and uh, really, really invested in the story. And I remember like, you know, you have that shot of them walking up just to this lifeless corpse of Zero and just like the fog, the atmosphere kind of just got under my skin, even though I was cheering that Zero's out of the <laughs> picture, uh, even though I never quite quite hated him quite as much as you, but uh, um, it was still... I think that's partly what made it more shocking too is like, you know, he was he was a major character in the the film and has been in several episodes since and now we're just kind of like in this weird location walking up to his lifeless corpse. It was a it's a really you know, cool but kind of eerie atmosphere for the whole last act. Yeah, this whole episode has really great building blocks for a, a, a great hard-boiled detective story like because I think when, as it, when it actually ends, the, the plot is actually pretty cool. You know, you have him trying to blackmail the Hot Clan. So, and he escapes with size noodles. So they send Bane after him to retrieve the information. But it actually turns out Snoodles is working for Jabba the Hutt as she kills him. And both Bane and uh, the Jedi are double-crossed. In the end, they have to fight each other while Snice Noodles goes back to Jabba the Hutt. So now he has all the information on the rest of the, the Hutt Clan. It's, it's, it's a nice little um, complicated uh, plot. However, it's populated just by these really annoying, unlikable characters like Zero and Psy and Bomb of the Hut. It's just, it's just like if they had been, you know, real characters that I liked, be be that they exist, uh, it could have been a really cool episode. As it is, I, there's some good moments, but overall, I don't, I don't care for it too much. Yeah. Next episode is Heroes on Both Sides, directed by Kyle Dunleavy, and this arc is written by Daniel Arkin. Uh, so as the as the banking clan fights in the Senate to authorize new loans to pay for a fresh batch of clones, Padme is trying to seek a way to dip, to diplomatically end the war. So Padme and Ahsoka travel to the separate separatist planet Raxus to meet her old friend Mina Bonteri uh, to try and uh, broach the idea of peace with the um, the separatist parliament. And you know, as the title suggests, I I really like this episode for the way it. It humanizes the separatists. You know, they've always just been this faceless evil represented by Dooku and 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 killer droids. But here we actually see, you know, it's it's an, it's an entire group of people who simply want to control their own government. They don't want to. They don't want. They don't want to have to answer to the Senate. They want to have their own. They want to have their own way. And it's it's something I can actually sympathize sympathize with. Like looking at the way we are presented with the separatists here as simply people who want to be independent. I think I, if it weren't for the fact that they were, they are in the end controlled by a Sith who's only, who's creating the war to cement his own power, I would probably be uh, with the separatists. Although, I mean, the Republic is being controlled by a Sith as well. Yeah. But I would say like, when you look at the conflict, it's literally just one group wants to be independent and sure, let them. <laughs> yeah. I think that this, of all of the things that the Clone Wars does, this is one of the most necessary, if any of them can be considered that, just because of this 
adds a whole new layer to the war. Like, I think in one episode, the war takes on a completely different light. Um, even lines, you know, where, what was it, her, her husband who was killed. I think that was the reference I made where it had been at least last, or the war itself had lasted at least a year by this point. Because um, it, it was a year prior where her husband was killed by clones. And, you know, to, to frame a scene like that tragically where it, it was the clones, these guys that we've been rooting for for two and a half seasons now is like, but then he was discovered by clones and killed. It's like, oh, wow, you know, this war does look different depending on the side. Yeah. Um, and to actually hear it and to not, you know, make a caricature or, you know, vilify the opposing side and really give them very human faces and, you know, sound logic and reason. Um, I think it does a lot for the for the series. And during their... Um, their separate or their um senate hearing honestly i found myself wanting like wanting to agree with them whatever they were saying like you know unlike the republic this is an actual like democracy and everybody's voices will be heard and it seemed like you know everybody there outside of dooku was actually really in this for legitimate reasons yeah they, they actually want peace and it was kind of interesting the way they they frame it where like the, the go even negotiating is illegal within the republic like they won't even they can't like they're, they're literally at war with this group but they they were somehow afraid that opening negotiations will grant them legitimacy despite the fact <laughs> that the entire galaxy is being ripped apart by them but they're afraid to talk to them because it'll it'll it's as if they're acknowledging that they're actually a, an organization yeah that was I, that's what i had in my notes where it's like you know, the almost peak arrogance of the republic just in that one line um and i just said you know how how can you do anything to illegitimize like the group that's pretty much causing like galactic wide destruction and is the entire reason you're arguing about like this new bill to increase funding like you're in debt because of them mm -hmm. it's just such this like it it feels like you know this prideful like this entire like government-wide sense of pride barring them from very real conversations yeah and it, i feel like george lucas is probably a conspiracy theorist uh, with the way that this episode you know it's all it's all goes back to the banks you know the banks are funding the war you know they're funding both sides so they have a vested interest in keeping the war going so they can sell weapons and droids and clones to either side um so they're trying to push the bill that will increase that will allow the senate to spend more or the republic to spend more and they are so you have padme kind of rushing around trying to block this bill and so they have to or basically create a terrorist attack to keep the citizens in fear to keep the war the, you know, the war machine moving yeah it felt like a not so veiled commentary i think there's that there's that line where he even says you know, like we need this bill to be passed to fund the machine <laughs> oh, very yeah. obvious the, the, the banking clang people are just like fiendishly evil like <laughs> Seti and Darkrum's cackling to themselves <laughs> it's like a shame they don't have mustaches to twirl oh yes they would. one of the things though that I did like about this was it gave Padme like reason to oppose I feel like a lot of the time she's just opposing any sort of military issue or funding or anything and the they never really elaborate on it and with the um 
in Attack of the Clones, when you know she's trying to be there to vote on the military creation attack or a military creation um, act, and she said, you know, to do this would only be like to send other people towards the separatists and these, this and that. But it doesn't. It just feels like she's there to oppose it because, like the heavy foreshadow, she's opposing Palpatine and his, you know, kind of escalating this war. Whereas here, um. It's for finance. It's for fiscal reasons. Um, it, and, and, yeah, that that and the fact that negotiations are illegal. Like we we won't talk to them. You know, we're just going to drive ourselves deeper and deeper in debt as we're pushing the war forward. We, we, you know, we could possibly just end this by talking. Yeah, and so often, like, um, in in different shows, and sometimes in this show, you know, when you have the speeches, and you know, if we could just learn to talk, they come off as really cheesy, um, and they fall flat. But here, you know the way they're having this converse, like the fact that you really can just say, Hey, maybe we should just talk like that statement actually means something considering talking actually is illegal in this case. Yeah. And I love the, just the visuals, you know, how when the, the, the terrorist transformers go in and blow up the power plant, you just have people in running in fear in the streets as the lights go out. And it really like without dialogue really hammers at home, just like what fear can do to a populace. You know, it, it, as if they are, if you can keep them afraid of an enemy, you know, you can keep you can you can keep your war going. Essentially, like all they have to do is create fear, and they have their war. That's why Palpatine's one of my favorite characters. His plan is just so fun to watch unfold. Yeah. Uh, so next episode is Pursuit of Peace, uh, directed by Dwayne Dunham. In this one, Padme, Bail Organa, and Uncle Anno desperately work to block the new spending bill as dangers increase around them. And this thing like really immediately opens super dark, where we have uh, Dooku's hologram to the Senate, where he talks about uh, Senator Bonteri, the person we just spent the last episode with, has been murdered. So you know the the peace talks are just completely breaking down, and you have uh, Padme and. Organa just kind of running around trying to find any kind of ammunition or political leverage they can to block the spending bill. <laughs> and this one, this entire thing is, is a you know completely political thriller. Um, and I just like the, the, the way that they have to, you know, they have to go talk to senators, you know, prepare speeches and try to, you know, coerce, almost like coerce various senators to vote for them and win people over the side. It really does feel like, you know, a, a well thought out political story. It reminds me of um, of the episode prior that we were talking about, or I guess on last episode, where you kind of you're able to look at all of the different ways that it was influenced by by the political genre. With you've got the the political conversations and and that plot moving like while following concurrently like this more physical like on the run type thing. Although you don't you don't have that completely here, but you still have the action of like trying to get the ball rolling here while also being hunted by these two bounty hunters. Um, and you've got these different parties where you can split the plot off in multiple ways with uncle Anna, who's back now and bail and, and Padme. Um, it almost reminded me of, um, of Lincoln a little bit where you've just got separate parties just going to all these different people yeah, and like a lot like Lincoln. just focusing on, on different discussions. And I, I like how you know the, the uh, Dooku is like hiring bounty hunters to go and beat basically beat them up or kill them to stop them. And you like you come in next morning and Uncle Anu is coming up with his you know bruises and his 
his up his arm in a sling and it just the whole thing just feels so claustrophobic and dangerous thankfully they hire two very incompetent bounty hunters <laughs> so both padme and bale survive but uh, i do like how, the way bale just takes on the situation like uh, when they come at him he like knocks both of them down is able to jump into his car and start speeding away it's only after they shoot it that he crashes but like he takes care of business yeah and i also like that it, it kind of gives us a glimpse of the culture surrounding like the different senators and the way they think of each other where you know now we know that Bale is actually a very well thought of, even by those who disagree with him. And, and his his word can actually carry weight. Um, and then just seeing different shades of like different centers where it's like, not this guy, this guy isn't pure evil. And this guy isn't, you know, this noble, upright character. It's just people who are really, when it comes down to it, care about, you know, their I mean, he even says, you know, like, all I care about is my constituents mm -hmm. and really getting down into like the political discussions where it's before it's always, you know, what's morally right to do here. And and here it's like, no, what's what's going to get the votes? What's going to look good? Um, who's going to say it that I can actually follow through with like. Again, and this is a kid's show where we're actually having to take a lot of things like that into consideration. Next episode is Senate Murders, uh, directed by Brian Kalen O'Connell and written by Drizzy Greenberg and Brian Larson. Uh, this one, as they continue to oppose the spending bill, Uncle Anno is murdered and Padme and Organa investigate his death. So this one was aired as episode uh, as episode 15 of season two. Kind of, it was taken out of this arc. And it doesn't make a lot of sense in season two. But here, even though it's obviously written as a continuation, like it's the same conflict. They're opposing this, the spending bill and you have the same villains, the you know, the the, uh, the banking clan and the uh, lady from Camino. Um so it's, it's the same conflict, but it, it feels so different from the previous two episodes. Like even down just to the lighting, like the, the previous two episodes were very dark and moody with like this kind of noir lighting and this sense of kind of conspiracy and claustrophobia. This one's like really brightly lit, and like uh, and for some reason like Bail Bail and uh, Anno are no longer like bandaged and bruised. They're all fine. So it, it's kind of jarring the way the way they had to change this to put it somewhere else. And so so we we have a. Obviously, Anno is murdered. So, so with this episode, we have the, the return of uh, Inspector Tandivo. Um, and it was weird, like, in, when he was first introduced, it seemed to me that they were trying to make him just completely incompetent. But here, it, it's almost like he's the one who's right and sees the whole, the whole thing the whole time. Because Padme immediately suspects that it's, it's the people tr who are they're opposing on the spending bill. He's like, obviously, they killed him for political um, purposes. He's like, I don't know. He, you know, he had a lot of enemies and like every step of the way, he's kind of one step ahead of Padme, which is just weird. Cause he's played to be incompetent. Yeah. It, his character here does feel weird where it's like technically on paper, he is right. But again, though, I think just the way they represent him and portray him is important. And it still feels like down at the end of the episode, he's just being portrayed as this, this, buffoon who thinks far too highly of himself mm -hmm. it's, it's just and and again coming at the end of of this arc where we have had like very serious and moody episodes and now we've got this like i really don't like the design of him <laughs> it, it it is just too even though the proportions of this series have always been off but here he's just he just looks off it's cartoonish the audacity of him yeah i know this is star wars dang this is serious but exactly i'm invested and he, but he just he does not visually fit in with this world and that, everything down to his voice and 
it's it's just so odd. Yeah, so there there is an interesting idea underneath this to where it turns out in the end to not the murderer wasn't a separatist or someone from the Bacon Clan. It was the junior senator from Rhodia, who is you know basically killed him for. It's never. It's not entirely clear. Like, like I, the idea is, I guess, supposed to be like even if you're currently a good guy, the mistakes of the past can still catch up with you. Like, but they never clarify what those mistakes are. Uh, like, I, I took it as it being um, what he did in that stupid Jar Jar episode. Bomb Bomb Bad Jedi. One. Yeah. yeah so I, but yeah, but looking back on that, I don't understand why she would want to kill him. For like, like. I, how did that hurt her or her people? Like, it, it's it's very vague as far as like, her motivations. Like, why? What was his crime or whatever that would cause yeah. her to kill him? And that episode was so self-contained, and I can't imagine unless there's just a lot that happened prior to the episode. You have to, you know, it's kind of hard to imagine any sort of extensive, lasting damage he had done. You know. Yeah. I think that that is an interesting theme. You know, you know, he's if like at one point he was corrupt or on the wrong side, but now he's on the he's now one of the good guys, and maybe our heroes have forgiven him, but maybe you know maybe he caused a lot of damage, and and that past and, and the the sins of the past can come up and ca- can catch up with you. And that's an interesting theme, except for we we don't know what the sins of the past are. Uh, the season takes a pretty drastic turn with next episode, which is Night Sisters, directed by Giancarlo Volpe, and this whole arc is written by Katie Lucas. After Sidious commands Ventress's death, Dooku abandons her in a battle, but she survives and flees to her old home on Dathomir, where she rejoins her family of Night Sisters and plots revenge on Dooku. I, I think just opening up is pretty interesting, where you have Palpatine, you know, stepping in to reinforce the uh, the rule of two. Um, he he kind of allowed Dooku to create this apprentice slash assassin, but now that she's going powerful, he has to step in and basically force Dooku to have her have her murdered. And it's interesting that Dooku seems genuinely sad about this, like the message he sends to uh, Ventress, which you know where he's, he calls her, he seems sorrowful. He calls her child, but I guess that that shows just how committed he is to the entire Sith ideal, which is sacrificing anything and everything around you for this blind pursuit of power. Um, Like the hints we get at their dynamic are kind of, we we never really see them together for most, for for basically the entirety of the TV show. But like the hints we get, I think are, are interesting. Yeah. It definitely feels, you know, we talked earlier about how she and do, or she and Grievous are kind of both in the same position, but it seems like there's, it is strictly, you know, like military hierarchy almost with with Dooku and Grievous. Um, and yes, he's training him, but there doesn't seem to be any sort of established relationship beyond, you know, you answer to me. Whereas here, it seems almost like she's, he takes pride in her, you know, like he's, mm-hmm. um, he actually genuinely wants to see her succeed. Whether, you know, I'm sure that's for selfish reasons, because, you know, it, a good, I think, you know, in that kind of culture, you know, the stronger your, your Padawan or your your apprentice is, you know, the better that makes you look. Yeah. But it, it definitely seems like there was an actual relationship between the two. Yeah, it, it is that kind of, he, it makes him like a legitimate Sith himself taking on the apprentice to be able to train her in the dark side. Yeah. Um, But I think most interesting is Ventress's reaction. Like, 
looking at Ventress over the over the course of the series, she was just you know, she was evil and full of hatred and rage, but I never felt that she was like she was going after power. Like it, it really felt like she was she was actually in this for Dooku. Like she really, like for her, the end goal was pleasing her master. So like so when he she's betrayed. She doesn't go off, you know, start a Sith Empire to try to amass power on her own. It's like she has to go and find another organization to be a part of. She goes back to the Night Sisters, and it's all about revenge now because she poured her entire life into, you know, trying to please Dooku and just to be thrown out like that is it just creates turns her into this kind of just enraged, wounded animal. Like when she's fighting with um Anakin and Obi Wan in the ship, like you can tell she's just like completely out of it and like she like screams and like chokes able to force choke both of them just because there's so much just rage and i love how the music like she screams as she's choking them and the music kind of like rises up in chorus with her it's just, it's like it shows just how powerful the dark side could be when it's channeled through emotion yeah you really like that scene is really awesome and the moment she's able to pretty much completely disarm both of them and hold them in the air um, you understand why Palpatine is stressing your like your your hatred and anger make you strong, uh, because it seems like that that is what the dark side is just complete anger and hatred and and rage channeled into power, mm-hmm. um, and it is like a, it becomes a force to be reckoned with, um, and it just speaking of that scene and really the action of this whole episode, I think the action here is really really strong. Yeah. Um, the the opening space fight uh, or space battle, I think, is very intentionally like um, reminding you of of the opening to Revenge of the Sith. But it's it's really cool because you picture all of those tracking shots and the way the whole battle flows, and you imagine it in live action, and it holds up where it really feels like you know by this point the animation has improved a bit between this and season one. And, oh yeah, um, it just it looks so cool, and they spend you know. They spend a good amount of time of giving like little cool moments throughout the entire thing instead of just starting us out in space and then aborting the ship. Um, yeah, there's there's a and there's cool banter between the characters. Uh, I think it, it starts off really well. Mm-hmm. And it was really cool seeing Ventress have her old like red fan shaped ship that she had from the uh, 2D animated series. Oh yeah, it's a really cool design. Um, so she flees back to Dathomir, which is a really just the whole Night Sisters is such a odd addition to the Star Wars as a whole. Like these, like the planet, entire planet is all red lighting, and they're like these kind of forest sprites. Um, just but the the way their culture is portrayed, and Mother Talzin with her like floating cowl, and that that voice, uh, kind of, that, it's, it's like this echo underneath her voice, like, like as if she's like channeling this demon through her that's kind of like like it, it, it's just like talking behind her like there's this voice that kind of echoes everything she says it's really really creepy and then you have the magic which is it's kind of visualized as green like roiling green mist and it doesn't look like the force and they actually say in, in the commentaries that it's not supposed to be the force it's, it's an entirely different type of energy but just the whole dynamic we are given with the night sisters is like something entirely new to star wars as or the films they, they, they come from the, the eu but just it's such a different and weird 
uh, addition to the to the visual uh, Star Wars, and I really like it. it. It's weird for me, like you know, having this probably been like the third time I'm just watching it completely through, uh, and I still have mixed feelings on it. Where like I love their society and I love the visuals of, uh, like you know, all the you know the bald heads and the the cloaks and the the laser arrows and things like that like it looks all very visually striking and even the way like the mist is visualized it looks really cool i'm just and this could be very much more of a, a personal thing as opposed to any sort of actual real criticism but it it does feel like it just stands in stark contrast of of the way everything else and star wars looks and to see what feels very much like actual magic mm-hmm. um because, you know, a lot of people call Star Wars a space fantasy instead of just calling it sci-fi. And and I like that term for it. And you kind of substitute in the force for magic and it works. Um, and now we almost can't even do that because it's not subbing in for magic anymore because we actually have actual magic in Star Wars. And I guess if you wanted, this could this is like some other aspect of connection to the force um i think that they mentioned that it being that actually for some reason i, w- I want to say i remember a line later on in the series where they explain it a little bit more and it's kind of this more mysterious dangerous mm-hmm. aspect of the force that's not really used I, I'm, I'm not sure but again even beyond just what it is it just it feels different um it and i'm learning to enjoy it but it is weird because, like, again, visually, I think it, in taken in isolation, it actually looks really cool. It it just feels so much different from everything I'm used to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely get that. I I I often have problems when they when they have a tonal shift, and so that just feels wrong. But it just works for me. There's something so other and creepy about them that I think I find them a very valuable addition to the canon. I just love the way the magic is visualized, like a lot of voodoo imagery and references, and it just feels so evil. The sound design on Dathomir is really good. It's this constant creepy unease that's like telegraphed through the sound design and the music. It's really, really powerful. It just gets under your skin, which I think it's supposed to. This this is something entirely different and evil. It just feels like even worse than the dark side almost. Yeah, and I'm glad that the, this episode we come here multiple times just because of how like how perfectly they were able to really set a tone and atmosphere here. You know, the longer you spend here, the more it just it sticks with you. Um, and the imagery, you know, going to the the village where all the males are, it just it looks creepy. It, it, I mean, I think I just feel like ominous and foreboding. Just describe it better than anything. Yeah, so th- this arc is really about Ventress. She's betrayed by Duco, so she goes back and and uh, enlists her people for revenge. And, and the sequence where she kind of stumbles in and they take her and they have this healing ritual, which is like, kind of horrifying on its own. We we glimpses into her memory, um, and we see uh, kind of her history: how she was sold into slavery as a baby, and then taken on as a, uh, a Jedi Padawan, and. She, uh, her, her master was killed, and so she took his lightsaber and basically turned to the dark side for revenge on the, her, his murderer. And you kind of can kind of only imagine what kind of dark path she went on after that, basically devoting her life to revenge until, I guess, um, Dooku found her. And I kind of like to still think that what we see in the 2D Clone Wars is canon as far as 
you know, Palpatine and Dooku seek her out for the explicit purpose, you know, to test Anakin. And, you know, she's if she survives, Dooku kind of takes her on as apprentice, but she's kind of outlived her purpose for, for Palpatine. So the fact that they, they brought her in, not even for herself, but for her, what she what for Anakin, it kind of explains how easily they cast her aside. And it, it, and you really you, even though she what all she wanted was to be evil, you do feel for that for that betrayal. It, it, it hurts still. Yeah. And I think that the creepy scene of them like swaying and her like us diving into her memories, that um, does so much for her character. Um, and it goes a long way in actually making her fairly sympathetic, even though uh, I think they play that up much more as the series goes on. And here, you know, they have her just killing uh, Iridonians. But you, it makes her, at the very least, more understandable. Um, and, and I was kind of upset initially that that's all we got from her backstory, that we just leave, you know, we don't really understand why she's walking out there as a kid and... Um, what what the context for that is and then we you know it never really explains what happens after her master is killed and she's she's more grown up but on second viewing i actually like that they leave so much of that just ambiguous and let you fill in the blanks because like you said you can only imagine what what happened to her or what path she went on following her master's death that brought her to the feet of dooku um, and I like to just think, you know, like she become, she just became so um, fueled by revenge and grew in the force that Dooku just kind of almost felt her presence, like, and almost like sought her out, yeah, um, to train. Because again, it seems as if he's fostering a very real relationship in terms of like Master Padawan uh, with her. It seems that she doesn't. She like she has no concept of a life outside of this kind of like. She was sold into slavery as a baby, and then that master died. So she, so she latched on to the Jedi and as his Padawan. Then he died, so she latches on to Dooku, and he betrays her. So she returns and tries to throw herself into the, the life of a Night Sister. And it, you know, it's not until that kind of last thing is destroyed where she actually is able to become, you know, her own person. Like she has forever defined herself by who she was loyal to, and she was able to cut. She basically molded herself to whatever ideal that her current master uh, was going after. It's really interesting. I'm currently reading through the, the book Dark Disciple, which which is based on what would have been an eight-episode arc in season seven or eight. Um, and I think we were supposed to have gotten more, probably an episode about her backstory with the Jedi. That would have been interesting. I'm, I'm actually meaning to pick up a couple of the, of the canon novels, especially those that kind of continue um, Clone Wars... Uh, and rebels plot lines. See, so, yeah, the, the rest of this episode is about her and two other night sisters going to murder Dooku. Or, um, and I love the effect of them being invisible. It's it's believably invisible, but you can see just enough, like where you could watch their facial features and see their their um their uh, kind of silhouettes. But it's still hazy enough to 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 buy that they're they're actually invisible. It's really cool. Yeah, and I like that you know. It puts the POV, or it gives the POV to to Dooku, yeah, and it establishes that he actually can't see them, and so it's it's just cluing us into you know what we're seeing isn't exactly what he's seeing. It's just helping us out. Uh, it, it is a cool effect, uh, and that fight scene, yes, is 
one of the cool, if not the coolest of the series so far. It's, it's. I think one of my favorite things about it is it just shows how powerful Dooku is. Like, even when he's standing there and can't see him, uh, just blocking all three attacks and standing, like he keeps that po- like that upright posture through so much of it. Um, and you feel it when he actually uses the force and like throws them against the wall and, and their invisibility kind of like sputters as, as they hit against like the physical objects and things like that. Uh, and that last moment where he's just, he's got all three of them in the air and like he's got two of the bolts coming out of one hand to shock the other two with her. It's just, it's such a cool scene. Yeah. And the way they show his fighting style, it, it, he feels very, a lot like Obi-Wan does where he'll plant himself in the middle of the a- the action and fight almost entirely defensively in this like very s- smooth motions that like use as little like with as little motion as possible and and until you know he finds a weak an opening then he'll strike but it's it's almost entirely defensively with him kind of himself as the center of the action and it's really really interesting to watch and so, you know he's he fights defensively and yet even just as a viewer it doesn't look like, you know, they they've got him in a corner or oh, anything. No, yeah. Even when he even when he's fighting defensively, it looks like he's fighting as if he has the upper hand. Yeah, he he is where he wants to be. I, I love how how smart Mother Talson is in going about this. The way she, you know, makes them invisible and gives them lightsabers so he'll assume they're Jedi. And you know, if they kill him, awesome. But if they don't kill him, she also has a backup plan. That means he'll need a new apprentice. And they apparently have some kind of working relationship already. Um, I guess that, you know, I guess Mother Talzin was the one who gave him Maul in the first place, and maybe possibly turned him on to to a uh, Ventress. Yeah, actually, you know, now that, I, now that I think about that, you know, she does kind of have. I'm not sure if that line was implying that he came to her, but she, you know, she does say, "Since you weren't able to tame one of our females, um, it almost does sound like she's like, you know, oh, the last one I gave you didn't work out." Yeah, I mean, she obviously Ventress wasn't with them, but she she could have at least you know pointed him in the direction, assuming he, like he he was impressed by Maul. So yeah, next episode is Monster, uh, directed by Kyle Dunleavy. This one, Dooku comes and asks for a new apprentice, and Ventress tests the uh, male Zabrax uh, and chooses Savage Opress, which for the longest time I was like rolling my eyes at this name. But however, when I think about it, the males on this planet are literally literally just. Guys who spend all their lives practicing war in the hopes that they can be chosen by a female in combat. So it kind of makes sense that they would name their kids like these fierce warlike names. Yeah. And it just, to me, it sounds cool off the tongue. Yeah. Savage, feral, maul. One of the things that I like about that is it almost sounds like that kind of culture is almost like if you were to say that that happened in, in our reality, you know, like thousands of years ago. That this is some culture we learned about, it seems just believable enough, you know, like that that there'd be tribes of men who who would fight for this, like for to be to be chosen for things like this, almost like a a more matriarchal kind of like Sparta, almost very war centric. But again, yeah, it's learning all of the crazy things in history. It it feels like when we go there, when we travel there with Ventress. It feels like we're traveling into like an age-old tradition that's just been happening, like a culture that has had this fully established. Yeah, I really like the trials. Um, really great atmosphere. Like the first one's just kind of all out, kind of 
brawl. The second one is where she's stalking them in the dark and she has these like, these blades on ropes. And you just hear her cackling in the darkness and the swish as she's swinging these blades. And she kind of comes out and catches one and kills them. And it's really creepy. Um, but the, I, I really love the final one. It's like they're kind of running around these moving platforms. And you have Savage, who's actually voiced by Clancy Brown. Uh, he's trying to protect his brother. And he actually gives her a serious fight. And I think the choreography, when they really go at it towards the end, is is like is very, very impressive. It, it feels like a legitimate martial arts. Like there's, there's like real choreography going in. And the, the, the hits feel brutal. And it moves so fast. But it, it, never, it never feels like it's all for sure. It just feels really intense. I think it's really uh, put together quite well. Yeah, and, and speaking of Clancy Brown, it's kind of funny. We've kind of going back to back with the with SpongeBob actors because he, of <laughs> course, plays Mr. Krabs, and then Tandivo is voiced by SpongeBob himself, uh, Tom Kenny. Oh, okay. <laughs> I I don't watch SpongeBob. <laughs> oh, well, I I will go ahead and say I, I, it's pretty hilarious. Okay. But yeah, that that fight scene with her, all three of those are really cool. Where you, that first one is just this. The first one feels very accurate for the kind of culture they are, where it is every man for himself. It's just brutal um, fisticuffs, uh, very savage, <laughs> savage kind of fighting. Um, and it's like when you almost feel like Lucas wished that he wasn't confined to ratings because as she runs by and just slashes out with those uh, those blades, you feel like he, he he's just wanting to like throw blood across the screen because it, it sounds so visceral and violent. And it's you know I I almost wish we were able to learn about Savage more here because he he seems himself you know very noble with the way he protects uh, his brother uh, makes the ending very sad. They do a great job of of uh, establishing that relationship enti- almost entirely through action. Like it's not even introduced to like halfway through the episode. By the time we get to the ending, we really buy it. She eventually chooses Savage and she she takes him back and they perform all kinds of voodoo on him and grow him into this giant, terrifying Frankenstein thing. And I just I love again the sequence is so just unnerving with the Dutch angles and the way his horns grow out. To have to prove that he is completely under their control. They have him kill the person he loves most. And this is where you realize, yeah, this, I guess you kind of been on the night sister's side because they want to kill Dooku. But yeah, these, these people are, are not good guys. It's yeah. that, you know, the second you begin kind of to get a little sympathetic to Ventress, you know, learn, seeing her backstory and that she's essentially just had to go from person to person and attachment like oh man, there's something here, but her and all of these night sisters, like they are just completely and unapologetically evil. Yeah, it's the, oh, the scene is so violent. He just with one hand snaps his neck as he's pleading with his brother. This is a kid show. <laughs> and his his reveal to Dooku though is, I think he's one of the coolest character designs of the whole show. Like when he walks down and he's like a solid foot at least taller than everyone else, and is. His horns are just hugely elongated, and he's got that really widespread armor. It's just such a cool and imposing character. Yeah, despite having two and a half seasons that are showing how awesome these Jedi are, just the design is so physically impressive that you believe that he could still beat almost any Jedi. Yeah, like it's just this combination of like force with genuine brute force, well with brute force <laughs> with the actual force. 
he's like a creature of like pure rage. So he has this, this connection to the dark side, but it's also, it kind of plays right alongside his massive physique. And, and the way they're able to visualize his combat, even just running, like whenever he actually breaks into a sprint, it's like they're able to mimic the feeling of like an actual object moving, like the, with the sound design and everything. It just feels like this hulking force. Yeah, it's a freight train coming at you. And so he he's sent to take out a Jedi temple. Um, and it is so savage <laughs> the way he kills like the clone when he's taking out these clones he like knocks them off screen but we see like bits of armor flying everywhere and then he goes and um kills the two giant again it's, it's, it's crazy with how how cool the jedi have been established to be but the way he comes in and just you know takes out the master then kills the 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 padawan is so it's like we're seeing something entirely new come into the universe. Like the Night Sisters themselves were like an entirely new element, but he, he's like a, a, an entirely new kind of threat that is just like so disturbing. And it's utilizing things that are familiar. You know, he uses the forest and, you know, we look at him and, you know, vi- there's visual comparisons between he and Maul, but yeah, he himself, just the way he fights and moves and, he completely changes the landscape of the battlefield. Yeah. And, and, and so next episode is Witches of the Mist, uh, directed by Giancarlo Volpe. And so you have Anakin, Obi-Wan, again, they realize that this is something entirely different. They're investigating uh, the new threat of Savage, and then Ventress moves in for her final revenge on Dooku. Um, I liked how the, the moment Obi-Wan saw the, the hologram of Savage, his mind immediately goes to Maul. You'd, you'd imagine that kind of that pain and fear is still right right underneath the surface. Yeah, and that's something that the show does really well with. Um, I mean, both with just subtle ways here, you know, where like that's the first place his mind goes to when he sees that, and they're able to to dwell longer on, you know, on Maul and the loss of um, of Qui Gon more than the the films did, and kind of develop this very like this long going or long lasting rivalry between he and Maul and that you know they obviously by the end of this episode they tease that they tease his return and so um there's little subtle hit like hints at uh at developments for Obi-Wan's character here or at least continuations of of his character yeah and in this one we get to see like full on Sith training and I guess it's every bit as brutal as you expect where with the Jedi, it's all about encouragement and you know trying to get them to connect with the living force around them. Here, everything comes back to pain and hate. He's trying to get um, Savage to like lift up these these uh, this uh, these pillars, which that whole area looks like kind of like an ancient Sith like training ground. Like this is kind of a ritual everyone has gone through. So he's trying to get him to lift him up, and and he sh- every time he fails, he's shocking him. Till like as he's shocking them, Savage has to just unleash all his hatred and anger through the from from the pain into lifting them all up at once. It's it's such a you know a dark thought for the dark side is is at its at its core a connection with rage, which is uh, which can be which can be uh, obtained through just pain and cruelty. There's no. There's no mentoring in Sith training. It's all about just 
turning this person into kind of almost like an animal by, you know, breaking them down to these two emotions through which they can channel the force. And that's achieved simply through, you know, physical and mental abuse. Yeah, it's almost like this, just a complete evil mirror of, of the Jedi where, you know, with the Jedi, you assign one person to one master to kind of like to foster that relationship and to, so you know, to really find ways to endear them to their master. Um, and it's like the opposite. You, all, you almost imagine that the the more that you you spend time under the tutelage of this person, the more you'll hate them. And the more you'll hate them, the more yeah. powerful you'll be. Like the, the defining element of their relationship is hatred for each other and they're proud of that yeah and but you can see that they're both the jedi and the sith in the end like with those training they're both after similar like physical results you know with yoda in um, empire strikes back is trying to get him to calm his mind to to be able to interact with the his environment pretty much through lack of emotion and here you know, all all that's being elicited is pure emotion, but it's to lift these pillars and to interact with this environment. You you just see how um, the force can manip- can be manipulated through so many different ways to achieve the same effect. Yeah, for the Sith, power is the entire end in of itself. So it's it's about seeking power through any means and. And emotion is the fastest way to get that. It, it doesn't require that kind of discipline necessarily. I mean, I mean, it, it, obviously, Dooku's only got to where he was through discipline, but this is like the the, the fastest way to the most amount of power. That, that's what that's what the Sith are. You know, they're evil because they are willing to do anything and everything just for more power, and, and it's a ne- kind of this never-ending scramble for more and more. Um, and like Sith, Sith, the, the entire rule of two comes with the assumption that the, in the end, the apprentice will kill the master and keep going on like stronger than ever. It's just, just this cycle of, you know, seek of taking out all obstacles. And if that becomes your master, your master has to go in, or maybe they'll have to kill their apprentice and get a new one. It's yeah, it's it's really fascinating. A couple other things. I I, I love the scene where uh, Anakin and Obi Wan go to the uh, the Zabra the the Zabrak males. <laughs> they kind of just walk in. It's like a super dusty town. It feels like a western. And then they have to you know fight all the, fight all the guys without trying to hurt them. And then they go to the Night Sisters. And I love how neither group really wants too much trouble with the Jedi. Like sure they they attack them at first, but as soon as they re- reveal who they are and what they want. They, they're like, yeah, just get out of here. Leave us alone. And then when they go to the Night Sisters, the Night Sisters, despite being the ones who are behind all this, kind of play cooperative. You, you would think they would put up a fight, but I guess they, they, they know that this is not something they want to get into. Yeah, it's such a different position for the Jedi where, you know, they're, they're getting involved only because of the, the threat that Savage opposes, or, uh, presents, you know, pretty much just being a tool for Dooku. But they're they're you know walking into to this plot that we've you know come to think of it you know we we've gone a good bit at least one entire episode without even seeing them and they're just kind of these outliers this third party walking into this established like revenge story. Yeah, I wonder why why would Talson give up Savage? I guess does she believe that he can kill them? 
Like, she just goes ahead and betrays his location to them. Yeah, honestly, like, Talzin is such an interesting character to me where I, I feel like we're never completely sure of her motivations. Mm-hmm. She, she always feels like she's 17 steps ahead of everyone. Including the viewer, you know. Or, you know, she seems so willing to help... Um, Sorry, she she seems so willing to help Ventress, you know, who comes in seeking it, and and at the end, it's it's her that Savage returns to, and and she, um, quite iconically, uh, at this point, you know, points him to Maul, and so it seems like she's she's there to assist, but whatever she does, it feels as if, in ways that yeah, I don't even know if the viewer knows, is in some way beneficial to her or her own amusement or something like I, I'm just. Again, maybe it's elaborated on later, and I'm just not remembering later seasons well. But I'm not sure if we're ever fully aware of like her entire end game with all of this. It almost feels as if she just views herself up, like so far above all of these other people, and she's just almost like a goddess helping out whoever shows up, and, and is almost just entertained by everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, so Dugu sends uh, Savage to capture King Katunko from way back in ambush and it doesn't end well for poor Katunko. Um, said, I actually really like this character. Yeah. I like the, the great moment he gets where he draws this silly little scimitar. It's like, we will, I will not be intimidated. Uh, it doesn't end well, but yeah, he gets a good moment. <laughs> Savage was supposed to take him alive, but he kills him. And oh gosh, the, the image of him just dragging the body by the foot. Uh, it's, like, you, know, <laughs> you just remember like the, that ambush was the first episode ever aired and it was just such a fun Yoda centric episode with fun moments with him jumping from droid to droid and uh and Katuko is a fun little memorable character and yeah now we're just dragging this lifeless corpse into to Dooku's feet in the middle of this horrifically dark arc over here uh we've come a ways yeah and so um Ventress returns and her and Savage attack Dooku and again, we have these like three really distinct fighting styles. We we talked about Dooku's fighting style, but Savage is just bull, kind of bull. Just all he all he knows to do is just run at the person and make these giant lumbering swings. Adventurous, she has a, her own very kind of like acrobatic style. It's all it's all like this wild attack, um, and you see all three characters have their own distinct fighting styles. They're fighting around each other, and Savage just gets tired of being yelled at and attacks both of them. And okay, it it, it is. Like even though you're I guess sort of on Ventress's side, it is satisfying that her you know her plans kind of turn against each other, turn uh, you know turn on her as well. It's almost it's fun as a viewer to really not have a horse in this particular race and just you're watching these three different parties who are all motivated by all these evil reasons just go at each other and you're like oh this is you know I, I'm not particularly emotionally invested in this but it looks awesome. Well, I, I say not emotionally invested. I, I, I actually really am very much invested in this plot, you know, but it's as far as which way it goes. Yeah, this this whole arc is completely separate from, or, I mean, the Jedi show up occasionally, but it's really, it is about <laughs> these incredibly dark factions fighting against each other. There's, the, the, the tone is very oppressive throughout. Um, Savage oppressive. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Obi Wan and Anakin arrive at the last minute, and I love the scene where Savage is escaping through, and he like, I think this is where we see that he's he is beyond just the physical. Whatever the witches did to him, he's 
something else. Like he takes like a dozen or so blaster balls to the torso and it doesn't even slow him down. So at first I was like, uh, you know, I, I get that Jedi can block lasers, but surely like he's surrounded and I, I know he's got a double bladed lightsaber and he's spinning it, but he's got to get hit. And then we kind of pan in and like, yeah, he's got, he's getting hit all over his back and his torso and he's still fighting. Uh, and I love that just he kind of screams out in rage and just everything around him falls over. Yeah. Whereas, you know, physically in, in hand-to-hand combat, he, he's this just brute force. But even in terms of the way he uses the force itself, it's just through complete hatred and emotion and rage. And you almost imagine that him, a force push from him um, is more than a force push from someone else. Just he's tapping into this very primal... Uh, usage of it and then uh, i love the scene when uh, after you know ventress has failed yet again and she's kind of alone in her ship and it's just that kind of slow dolly shot into her face and uh, again you, like even despite how evil she's been you do kind of feel for her how you know her entire life and purpose is gone like you know she was betrayed by a master she tried to live for revenge and now that's not going to happen she she has no purpose now she's just kind of this creature that's kind of left alone in the galaxy. Yeah. I, 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 it's not until next season, is it that, uh, or sorry. Yeah. Yeah. That's the last that we see of her, of this entire season. Then yeah. Until season four, but that, that, yeah, that's the last of her. We see this season and we're just kind of left wondering, you know, considering she's a character who's always been defined by who she serves. You're only left wondering, you know, what is, what does her life look like now? And to go to find out that, you know, even as a child, she's been defined by who's kind of taken care of her. I think that what helps make her so sympathetic is she has absolutely no, no real way of even knowing what to do. Like there's no vague ideas of, of what a life outside of this kind of lifestyle looks like. Mm-hmm. Like I was watching interviews with uh, Katie Lucas and the writing group and they're talking about like she never was a true Sith. Like for for what the Sith ideal is entirely self-serving desire and pursuit of power for its own means. And you know, it was it, for her. It was it, even though she obviously did horrible, evil things, and and you know dove into that type of cruelty and emotion-driven connection to the Force. It was still about the relationships for her. If she was a true Sith, she would have basically you know, turned into what Darth Maul becomes at the uh, in the next, when he returns. You know, she would have you know gone building her own empire, trying to you know continuing that quest for power. But as soon as that 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 relationship with Duke was snapped, her entire connection to the Sith is 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 gone. Uh, so this arc ends with Savage returning to Talzin, who seems fairly okay with the fact that he just betrayed her daughter, and. She she sends him on another quest, uh, and she shows him in a crystal ball this shadowy uh, figure of a Zabrak that looks a lot like a certain one Darth Maul, mm. which I'm sure drove fanboys crazy for a year. Yeah, I think that's the benefit of, of watching it after it's all out, is you don't have to wait that long to get, a, to get the rest of the story. All right, uh, and so next episode is Overlords. It's directed by Stuart Lee, and this arc is written by Christian Taylor. 
Anakin, Obi-Wan, and Ahsoka follow an ancient Jedi distress signal and find themselves on, mis- on a mysterious world where they meet three beings that represent a- various aspects of the Force. This is just weird. I mean, <laughs> just to start off with, th- this whole arc is probably the most out there Star Wars has been on film, at least. I mean, there's crazy stuff. There's crazy stuff in the, the EU. But I, I don't think we've gotten anywhere near this this completely abstract and just visually symbolic as we have here in uh, the Mortis trilogy. Yeah, there, there's definitely some big revelations. If you, if you can even call them revelations, I feel even with multiple viewings and video essays, I still feel very loosely aware of everything that I was meant to take away from this. Yeah, I, I have a lot of various thoughts on that, so I will just kind of dive into it. Um, so it, what what this is, essentially, they, they, they wake up and they're on this crazy planet that is like living and di- going through these life cycles every day. You know, everything dies at night, everything regrows at, in the day. And there's these three beings, the father, daughter, and son. Father maintains control over everything the daughter is light she's like this ethereal floaty angel thing and the son is uh represents the dark side of the force and he's basically if you imagine if you think of the word sith you'll probably imagine him so uh, the f- first thing that strikes you obviously is that this feel this sounds a lot like the referencing the other christian concept of the trinity the father son holy spirit um, and I mean, I, I I highly doubt that's accidental, but I'm not entirely sure what what to make of that. It's weird. I I mean, I never really read too much into that. Like, I'm not at all thinking that that it wasn't in like the back of their minds as they as they were doing this. It it wouldn't. I'm not saying you know you bring it up to them and like, oh wow, yeah, I I'm, I see where you got that. Like, I'm I'm sure they're fully aware, but I really don't think there's any anything we're supposed to take away from that. Um, it seems far more buddhist um like symbology or <laughs> symbology symbolism um going on here i think symbology is a word we should invent for this ep- for these two ep- <laughs> three episodes all right well it seems very it's got fitting. my stamp on it the mortis symbology uh, uh yeah so they're basically these all-powerful creatures that control this world um like one really cool thing is that they can control lightsabers wave their hand and the lightsabers extin- are, are extinguished. Um, so they, 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 the daughter first comes and talks about how they've been expecting it. She walks up to Anakin and says, you know, are you the one? And, and, and then, so she tries to take him to father and they're set. The son attacks and separates them. And the son, I believe the son goes and talks to Obi-Wan first. Well, the daughter takes Anakin to the father who through a lot of things happen. Um, and I, I I don't remember all the exact details of how these things happened, but eventually we learn that this this the father's story is that these there are three incredibly powerful people that have that have a much stronger connection to the force than any other living creature, and that they have been placed within this sanctuary. Is it ever called Mortis in the trilogy? I don't remember and i just watched it yeah so they they were placed within this this box in space as a way of protecting the outside world and i'm i'm not entirely sure if the son like and daughter 
were originally aligned with either side of the force, but at least over time they have become to where the sun is completely consumed by the dark side, the dark is completely uh, consumed by the light, and they kind of battle each other every now and then. And what we are told the prophecy of the one actually is when it comes down to it, we learned slowly revealed over over these three episodes is that Anakin, the the father is old and dying and he has been here all this time keeping his children in line so that neither, mostly just the sons, the daughter's pretty tame, Uh, you know, keeping the children in line so they don't escape and wreak havoc on the galaxy. And he is old and dying. So Anakin as the one who will bring balance is here to take the father's place and manage these children. Um, yeah, <laughs> that, so the big, re- big reveal that that's, that's what the prophecy was about. I mean, come on. We all, we could all understand that from the movies, clearly acknowledging that the prophecy was implying that he's going to be on this new planet with the two personifications of both sides of the force. Yeah. So how does that feel? Like, are you, do you buy this as what the prophecy actually means? Um, like, is it, does this a satisfying answer? Like, because we're never actually, we don't actually get an answer to what the prophecy is. Like we've had, uh, eight coming on nine, uh, films in the main saga and we still have it. We're still like no closer to getting an answer to what exactly it means to bring balance to the force and what it means to be the one. And so, I mean, I, 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 it, 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 this is obviously fair game. He can give whatever spin he wants to because we don't, we simply don't have an answer. Does this feel like a satisfying answer to that? If we're talking satisfying and like, I'm satisfied that I have conclusion, then not really. <laughs> I'm, like I said, I'm still only vaguely aware of, of what, like the, what this does to the lore at large. You know, honestly, I feel like you could just take these three episodes out of the Clone Wars and not much changes for me. Not because of that I I don't put stock in these episodes. I mean, I accept them as canon. But again, it's just I'm not sure how much difference all of this makes, especially considering I haven't seen Rebels, so I'm not sure... You know, if if, it, if the things, if the events here do come back, but it just seems like you know, sort of. <laughs> okay, well, for beyond rebels, you know, like this isn't really ever mentioned in any serious way. So I just, yeah, I, I don't really feel like any of the answers here or the direction they go here is really what anyone was thinking with the films. Nor does it really tie up everything that the films implied for me. Yeah, and the. Th- the thing that makes this just so unique it is that is that it is potentially the most important event in the entirety of, in the entirety of the galactic history that we've been presented with. This is quite possibly the most important event, and when it ends, it and when you think about it, it I I don't think it it really holds up to its pretentious. I don't mean that in a negative way, like you know, not to say this pretentious, but simply. The the lofty goals it's reaching for. I don't know that entirely holds up to that, because there are a few ways of of um of viewing this episode. I think two primarily. One is to take it completely literally, and that it's it is simply just 
there are three super powerful aliens hiding in a box in space. And the prophecy of the one is simply for Anakin to go there and babysit for eternity. That's that's the literal interpretation. The other main interpretation would be that this is entirely symbolic and that this is something that's happening entirely within their heads as they're asleep on the spaceship. And the prophecy of the one was about Anakin, I would, I guess, becoming one with the force and maintaining order and balance from the inside. Like there's a sequence in towards the end of the Coliseum where he's told to choose the, the, the son and daughter have transformed into like a bat and a griffin and they're going to kill Obi-Wan and Ahsoka. And he's told to choose to choose to save one of them. And instead he says no and summons all the force light and dark that is that is uh, channeled through this world and is able to subdue both the light and dark sides of the force and bend them to his will and make them, essentially make them kneel before him. So what would be my preferred interpretation would be that it's all symbolic. It's all, it's all about him becoming one with the force and ruling the force and bringing balance from the inside as one, one with the force and, and not just controlling and not allowing either the light or the dark to get out of hand and damage the galaxy. What's, what's weird is honestly, if this were a single, like a singular episode and not an arc and you just found a way to tie it up there, I can completely buy this as just a vis- like a force inspired vision, you know, and I'm like, okay. Yes. So the the entire purpose of the the prophecy in the chosen one would be that the force divinely revealed to him that it is his place to balance both sides. And that to me is fairly satisfying. But then of course we've got two uh two episodes that succeed it. So Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's if it had ended there, if the father came down and said, you know, congratulations, you're the one. I'm going to go die. You take over. And he says no. And they fly away and then wait. And then like it does end and they wake up in the ship and no time has has passed. I think we would have been given a completely coherent answer to the question. And it would have been just a fascinating little allegory. However, I I. Even though that's my preferred interpretation, I don't think that's really what it is. I, I don't. I think the next two episodes pretty much confirm that this in, the, that this world, despite being powerful in the Force, is still entirely mundane. It is literally just a planet with three really powerful aliens. Because you know they try to leave, the sun kidnaps Ahsoka, and then we become this. We go on this like long rigmarole where. Obi-Wan's talking to the father, Anakin's talking to the father, they're going after the sun, now they're, not, now they're coming back, and they're trying to fix the spaceship, and now Anakin's going this way, it's just everybody running in circles, trying to find a way off the planet, and the, the sun has a, pl- a plot, he wants to convert Anakin to the dark side, and take the ship, and leave the planet, and rule the galaxy as, you know, a new, um, a new power, you know, destroy the Jedi and the Sith, and rule the galaxy in the dark side, and the father wants to stop him, and various things happen, like he bites Ahsoka and she goes all evil dead, kind of uh, crazy, hmm. and they fight. And then the, the daughter is killed and she gives her life force to save Ahsoka. And then Anakin goes after the son, but the son shows him a vision of the future that he will have, you know, complete with Darth Vader and everything. 
and he decides to avoid that. He'll join the dark side. And there's a whole sequence where he's completely completely gone Sith or gone to the dark side, not necessarily Sith. And then the father comes and takes away all that memory. And now he's normal Anakin again. And then in the end, the father kills himself and Anakin kills the son and they leave. It's just this whole bunch of craziness happening that I think just takes by the end of it, all that incredible symbolism and allegorical potential is just gone. And I am, you probably know this, I am not the type that is always going, like, I want the mystery. And I'm not mad that we now know who Han Solo is. Midichlorians don't bother me because they take away the mystery. But with this specific story, I think the fact that it is so inherently symbolic, I think making it nothing more than what there is on face value really weakens it. Uh, So in, in the first episode, I feel like we're really meant to walk away with with some idea with new revelations that are that are very you know supposed to be big with with the visitations from the different ghosts. Um, are those even real ghosts? Like, well, okay, so Shmi was obviously the son. Does that does that mean that all three ghosts were the son? And if so, does that mean that we're just supposed to discard? everything that was said to Obi-Wan and uh, Ahsoka? So I've thought a lot about this. So I'm pretty convinced that Qui-Gon was actually the son. Anakin asks him, should I stay and and guard this realm, or should I find this creature from the dark side and kill him? And Qui-Gon says, neither. Look deeper and you will find another way. First off, we're never told another way because he ends up killing him. So we, we we never know what that other way actually is unless that other way is... Going to the pit, like, because Qui-Gon tells him, you have to go find this pit, this well of, of the dark side and go into it. And that is where he meets the sun. That's where the sun shows in the future. And that's where he joins the sun in the dark mm. side. So literally what Qui-Gon tells him leads him to the dark side. That, that, that's, the o- that's the only third option there is. Like, it's either stay there, turn to the dark side and leave, or kill the sun. And so the advice he, le- uh, he that the advice Qui Gon gives him is pretty. You know, is pretty much, you know, go tr- trust yourself, trust your instincts. Go to the well of the dark side, and you'll find a third way. And what happens? Yeah, yeah. That's I mean, you know the revelation, and even the revelation of what happens in the future isn't enough to turn him away from the dark side. It still it, it plunges him into it. That, that's what Anakin is. You know, he has. There's no real morality underneath what he does. He's he he's, he has out to protect the ones he loves. So he saw that. When I do this, I kill, I kill uh, Padme. Uh, I kill all my Jedi friends. I, I almost kill Obi-Wan. So in order to forestall that, I'm going to turn to the dark side and get this guy out of here so we can go kill Palpatine and stop all this from happening. He, it, it, it's, that, it's that pragmatic choice you know, without any actual morality behind it. He's going to do what it takes to save Padme. It, it's, still, you know, it's still the exact same choice he makes when he turns to Vader. It's still the exact same choice as to save Padme. Yeah, and What's weird is, you know, with um, if we buy that the Qui Gon visit was the son, um, then we know that the Shmi visit was the son. What is it exactly that Qui Gon says to Obi Wan? I'm I'm trying to think if not a lot. If we can, yeah, I remember that one being a bit more vague. If we if we accept the premise that that is the son. Um, I think you could even make the the visit to Ahsoka kind of make sense. Yeah. Um, 
because I think my initial reading was leave Anakin is is a wiser, uh, more matured Ahsoka saying, listen, he's having an effect on you. You're becoming more like him. I know, you know, I mean, as Rebels shows, um, I, I see the future version of you sees what he becomes. But then if you look at it through this interpretation, Ahsoka is also something that could potentially bring him to the light. Yeah. And so it, it could just be the son saying, yeah, well, here's a, an acceptable reason, but I just got, I've got to make sure there's no one around to, to reason with him. Yeah. I mean, it, it is uh, him no longer having Ahsoka as his apprentice, you know, spoilers for later seasons is very likely one of the tipping points that led him to the dark side. So taking away that, that this, this balancing agent is just one more step towards the dark side for Anakin. Yeah. So and for, as far as his, his visit to Qui-Gon that could actually be him because, you know, he says, you know, either if if he is not the one, then as powerful as he is, this is a very dangerous place for him to be. That's encouraging everyone to leave the planet. And I don't see the sun doing that. I would see the sun you know, trying to allay his fears and make him more comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, re- I really like the scene with uh, Shmi or the, the sun acting as Shmi where she comes and talks to him and Anakin can't even bring himself to say that uh, his mother is dead. It's a re- really good performance from uh, Matt Latner. Yeah. It's really, really, it's just, you see how that failure to protect is just gnawing at his soul. Okay. Yeah. So if we are to take the father's, the father at, at face value and that being the one literally means you are to stay here and guard these people and protect the universe from them. Wouldn't the fact that he killed them and they're no longer a danger to the universe mean that he succeeded? Possibly. So I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. What, what are they really? Are, are, are these aliens or the way I guess I want to look at it? um, I, I prefer looking at this all symbolically just because that's to me it's more it's more interesting than it this is just a planet with three different aliens on it yeah um and so you know they're talking about how they need to keep the sun the the sun contained here within mortis you know if if you look at him as an alien really they're just saying like if this go, guy goes out there he's just he's too strong on the force but if you look at it symbolically then you know we have to keep him contained because if he gets out, I, like if he gets out, are we talking about like an actual person getting out, or as soon as we wake up and this whole thing is over, have we all we really allowed to happen is allow like the dark side of the force uh, more room to operate in, in the shaping of the galaxy? Because if it's that, I don't think Palpatine needed the help. <laughs> that's true, or maybe things would have just been sped up. I, I'm not sure. But to if they're just symbolic, like these physical manifestations of, of the two opposing sides of the force, then, you know, by, by having them no longer really be there, are you back to square one now with, with genuine balance? Or have you really just killed two aliens who happen to be powerful? And as far as the force goes, things are kind of still as they were. I really like the allegorical interpretation, but I simply don't 
I, I cannot make a, I cannot make it work with Altar of Mortis and Ghost of Mortis. Everything those two episodes are telling me is simply that everything is what it looks like. And like, because the fact that the son is, you know, the son's trying to kill the father because the father's controlling him, and the fact that they can die says a lot about what they are. Um, and you know, he needs a ship to escape. I mean, that doesn't sound terribly, uh, you know, force like. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah, it, it's like they are, and the things they, they it seems like dis, distance matters to them. So it seems like they are literal beings. Um, so the only way, to me. Even though maybe you could say it's reaching a bit, maybe like distance and needing the ship and and all of that like that. It's just, it's visual representations of things going on. It's just a way for for us to be able to visualize the things that are happening. What is happening? (laughs) What what things do you speak of? See, that's a whole other thing. Yeah, and another issue I have is like, Another reason I really wish it stayed with the first arc is because after that first episode, th- this story just kind of wallows, and we're just kind of, it seems like we're going over the same beats over and over. Again. Like Anakin goes to talk to the father, then everyone goes to talk to the father, then Anakin goes over here, then they go over here, and you know, there's a lot of running back and forth. And like, there's a little thing where after the daughter dies at the end of the second episode, this, the father literally tells him, "You have to get out of here," so the son doesn't leave. The beginning of next episode, they're at the ship, and Anakin's like, "I have to go back to the father. I won't leave without his blessing." <laughs> you literally just got his blessing at the end of the last episode, and the 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 show is really, really just you know dragging, trying to just force more time and more conflict that just the, the, that the 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 show itself doesn't support. And there's like there's like two two different scenes. Where the son, he's talking about how much he wants to kill the father, and he has opportunities to, but he just he just monologues or runs away, or he actually kills the daughter and runs away. It's like there are there are there are so many sequences where this this conflict rightfully should come to a head, and instead people leave and go somewhere else just to make it last longer, and it's really frustrating. Yeah, and that's that's why. I feel like, you know, if we were going to continue beyond the first episode, really it could have been just reworked into one more episode because honestly, the Altar of Mortis and Ghost of Mortis just really blur together to me. I forget where one ends and the other begins and because it just feels like the second half of one and the the first half of the other is pretty much just, you know, you can rearrange the events, but it really is just this person going here, that person going there running all over the place and again you know we are kind of losing a lot of that symbolism you know because the first episode is almost so dreamlike where like Mm -hmm. just the coloring of everything and it felt allegorical you know it just visually it looked off from everything else we had seen and you know the way we move about environments is just so quickly we're carried off by giant creatures like it just it doesn't feel like our physical space but here you know like we're taking speeder bikes and we're riding from here to there. We're fixing our own like very physical ship. And so it doesn't really feel like what we're seeing is symbolic, even though, I don't know, maybe there can be a defense, like I said, where it is, but I, I don't know. I, I feel like this is one of those episodes where you can use the setting to your advantage and just like cut with all of the, we've got to go get here, but get here before this person and, I don't know. It, it's just so tedious. Yeah. 
Um, now, I feel like we've been bashing on it. There are a lot of good things in this episode, namely the visuals. This is the most beautiful this show has ever been. Uh, first, just the, the, the sound design, the, the, the kind of dreamlike quality, but also the fact that most of it takes place at night and there's a lot of crazy lighting. And it, it just it makes for some just gorgeous compositions and settings and backgrounds for everything that's happening. And, and it just I, you know, my jaw was on the floor, even if it, even if I was getting annoyed by the story, I, there was always something absolutely stunning to look at. Yeah, it feels almost like you're just watching a storybook where, you know, we said some of the symbolism may be lost uh, in terms of like the actual physical, like walking here and there. But it still it looks like we we are in a part of the world that is just completely taken over by the dark side of the force, um, like the the dark towers, the the red um, the atmosphere and like lighting and everything feels so somber um and i think you know in season three especially more than two even just things like the facial animation i feel like they were able to really emote with their characters a lot yeah and and there there are and in, in in there there are i think there are a lot of good sequences i i like the effect just the way ahsoka is when she's crazy like it really does feel like the evil dead when the people are taken over by the demons like the way she kind of taunts them she still has this, she still has the memory but she's like taunting, using using uh, you know personal things to them and things like that. And those two moments where she just kind of takes the time to look back at Anakin for a couple of seconds and smile, and then move. It's like it feels so sinister. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I love that Obi Wan just walks up and stands beside Anakin with his lightsaber. And doesn't say a word. He's like, "Okay, we're getting, I guess we're doing this now." <laughs> just I don't even want to ask. Uh, a couple things. Uh, the, the test. Um, where we are figuring out if Anakin is the one is absolutely incredible. Um, where you have the giant griffin and the giant bat, and Anakin's like summoning the force and, and the force in the planet. And I love how Obi Wan's kind of coaching him, like this planet is the force. Reach down and use it. And you see, like he's using the light side and the dark side, and the floor becomes translucent. And it looks like you're not there yet, but there's, there's an episode in Rebels called "The a World: The World Between Worlds." And the floor with all kind of that starlight underneath looks exactly like that. And then the sky starts like swirling between day and night. And and his like voice gets all deep. You know, on your knees. And just the way the sound design, the visuals, the way the camera's swirling around him as the uh, the whole stadium kind of like starts spinning and the floor turns into the yin-yang symbol. It's just really powerful. Yeah, <laughs> because of how good that scene looks and how, to me, satisfying it feels and it kind of ties things up nicely that's why i wish it ended there just that that's shot to me like a climax like that is what we've been building towards yes. to see this event of anakin bring balance to these two opposing sides we've learned so much about mm-hmm. and the, the actual sequence where anakin sees his destiny even though i i it's, it's such a cheat because they just take it all back um is powerful like it's this swirling smoke and we see images coming out of like Padme being choked and oh when you're my brother Anakin and all that stuff happening. It, it, it is. And then it kind of ends with the, the shape of the Darth Vader's helmet and the breath. Uh, it, it's really, really powerful, even though it doesn't really mean anything, unfortunately. I guess the last thing to talk about is just the way it ends and the way it wraps up. Like as, as Filoni and everybody who had every, like anything to do creatively with this. The way they ended this, and I guess we have talked a little bit about this, but I'm just thinking 
what is it exactly that that we're supposed to have ultimately walked away with? Like, mm-hmm. what are the what are the final events of this episode where the daughter is already dead and and she has been used to save us? So I, I feel like there's something we're meant to take from there. Um, the father ultimately kills himself and the son, I guess. Or well, then Obi Wan kills the son, and so now Anakin kills the son. Oh, sorry, yeah, Anakin kills the son. But if, if so, one of the things that confused me was it seemed very much like the son was intended on killing the father. Yeah, he tries like three or four times, and he was he was, <laughs> go, he was stabbing at his father with the exact knife that the father later kills, later kills himself when the daughter stepped in the way. So he he was he was there to kill the father. Yeah, and so. Oh, that, that's right. Yeah, the, the, the daughter sacrifice, and so. But then when we learned that the father really, like, by killing himself, he stripped the son of power. Uh, yeah, that, that, <laughs> it makes no sense. The entire plot of this this thing is going back for the the, the son is wants to get rid of the father, and there's like there's like the entire climax of the second episode is how you know the, the daughter giving her life to save the father, and then he kills himself and. Again, you know, we've been told that these guys are not susceptible lights to lightsabers, and I can kill the son with a lightsaber. It's just, it, it's completely contradicting everything we've been told on this whole rigmarole of these last three, last two three episodes. So, you know, looking at this chronologically, like just order of events, what is it that we're supposed to think changed before the beginning of this and after, where? At this point in time, the son, the daughter, and the father are all dead. Has that... Does it balance out as if nothing happened? Does that... You know, because there's... We, we don't have one side of the force overpowering the other. We don't really need the father to keep him in check anymore. And, and I, I guess I, I feel like the fact that they're both dead disproves any sort of allegorical viewing that they were just physical representations of of the force because obviously the force is very much still active and alive and i just i just wonder you know in in the minds of all of the creative people behind this episode like dave filoni and george lucas who who had you know say so in all of these events what is it that we're supposed to because i know that through interviews with with them on this they've been very secretive and they don't really want to open up about too much of this and so i can't help but wonder like well if you're not going to tell me i don't feel like i've been given quite enough to really understand what i meant to walk away was this a major event or was it not because i feel like everything just balances out and the universe continued on this on its path that was already set before it you know the teases towards anakin's fall happened way prior to this palpatine's plan happened way prior to this you can remove this these three episodes and things seem like they still would have gone on as as the direction has already been set so i'm just not sure what the revelations were here and what events were changed or set in motion because of this yeah that's the, that's my biggest issue with this like even if it it ended on the second episode which i think would be pretty weak but would work like the first you know you know, the light is, di- you know, the, the the symbolic representation of the light has died. There's no more balance. All is lost. So if they left then, that would obviously show why the dark side all of a sudden grew so powerful 
and took over the galaxy. Like that would be, that would have meant something. And I just don't, I can't find a way to make this series really mean anything um, unless it's simply just a story about three aliens, in which case boo. <laughs> but yeah, if it's supposed to mean something, I have no idea what it means. And I'm not entirely convinced they actually do either. Like, maybe they have they think they know what it means but i'm not i don't believe that there's any actual right answer looking at the material we're given it's it's simply it's just you know, a you decide and there's there's no there's nothing solid there's nothing there's no actual real meaning it's just kind of if this speaks to you good for you kind of thing yeah and that just feels frustrating for how evocative it is on the surface to see there's so little actually going on underneath. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> All right. Um, so the next episode is The Citadel. Uh, it's directed by Kyle Dunlevy, and this arc is by Matt Mishnovetz. In this one, Jedi Master Evan Peel is captured and tortured for information about new hyperspace routes at the dreaded Separatist prison, The Citadel. Anakin, Ahsoka, and Obi-Wan are sent to infiltrate the base and rescue him. So they're planning the mission... And Anakin does not want Ahsoka to go. I think this whole thing is fairly interesting because it also ties in with the next uh, Padawan Lost arc. But where you have Ahsoka is pretty is fighting really hard. She wants to go. And she's very adamant that the only reason Anakin doesn't want her to go is not because he's he actually doesn't think she's able or he's, you know, using his wisdom to see that she should not be here. It's more that he's doing it to protect himself. Like that, that's what she seems to take away from it. And by the end of the episode, I think that's what we're supposed to take away as well, is to where he simply does not, he thinks this is so, this is dangerous to the point where he is not willing to risk it for her, not not because he thinks it's better for her. And by the end, after Ahsoka sneaks on the mission and is proved to be of great use on the mission, and we get back, and she, she had lied and said that Plo Koon had, had sent, her, sent her after they had been uh, carbonated, and he hadn't. She lied about that. And in the end, when uh, Anakin asks Plo Koon if he actually had, he just kind of looks at her and then, then says, it seems I have, and covers for her. So from what I see, I, I think we're supposed to take it as Ahsoka should have gone, and that by this 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 time in her training, she is ready to start being start being considered her own, you know, her own capable warrior. Yeah, I... I have my own like issues with the way it wraps up, but yeah, there definitely seems to be a difference in her, you know, going against orders now and, and the way she would in like, especially season one. Yeah. Um, so I, I kind of wish that maybe, maybe she was almost pushed towards it, not pushed, but like, like not pushed or pressured or anything, but inspired to disobey orders by something that master Plo or somebody had said um and then him covering for her would make more sense because still you know even though she is in the right i think you know in, in terms of he is keeping me to, to quote to quote anakin he's holding me back um <laughs> she almost says that to, to Plo Koon. <laughs> yeah pretty much just in a much less cringe inducing way um at the end of the day, I, she still disobeyed direct orders from from a commanding officer and another commanding officer kind of just covers for it. It feels a bit weird, but I, I do think we're meant to look at it as if this is genuine growth. And 
and this is an example of like mature um you know not insubordination but mature um defiance of orders yeah and and i think i think this is this was meant to tie directly into the next episode we'll talk about when we get there (laughs) so yeah the, the the plan is this is like the most secure prison in the galaxy and the, they're going to they have reprogrammed uh, separatist battle droids under the command of R2D2, and they're going to freeze themselves, uh, the team, uh, Anakin, Obi Wan, and Rex, and a couple of the tr- troopers, are going to freeze themselves in carbonite to get past the life scanners and then um, infiltrate the base from there. And I really like that the, the carbonite uh, freezing room is exactly like it is in a. The Empire Strikes Back. It's the exact same kind of orange reddish glow. <laughs> I love Rex's line there. Spooky mist. I don't want to end up as a wall decoration. <laughs> uh, that this, the way this show references things like that, it's it's good stuff. Mm-hmm. And I like that the bad guys are actually smart and on top of things. Like the villain in this in this uh, arc is a uh, Ozzy Sobek. This really creepy devil looking thing, but I he, I like that he's actually smart and, mo- and he spends most of the time actually winning and like right at the beginning instead of like oh this ship is weird ah, that's probably fine he actually you know keeps an eye on it and checks on it and uses that to actually catch them yeah it's different from a lot of the other villains who really feel like like placeholders where we can't have the opposition be entirely just this the same this army of same faces um i feel like he's actually mm-hmm. a character and a presence yeah and I like the scene after the the scene after they land and the carbonites take it out and start to thaw. And I just love the way it's shot where Obi Wan steps out, Anakin steps out, and they're kind of all yawning. And Ahsoka steps into the frame and he's like, "Hey, Snips, hey, Master." And there's just kind of the pause where he just looks over, and then Obi Wan looks over. Obi Wan, I think he's kind of relishing this. He's like, "It serves you right for all the trouble you gave me." He's like, you know. Uh, I see Anakin's new teaching method is, you know, uh, do as I say, not as I do. Welcome aboard. And he's just kind of like, he seems to be just kind of happy that all this is happening. In there. Yeah, you definitely get the feeling that uh, he's almost looking at this as karma. Like, <laughs> he is just this, cause, I mean, as we talked about before, he's always very, like, nonchalant on all these missions. And he just kind of rolls with the punches and... To see Ahsoka come aboard, he's like, he's not going to make a big, like, to-do about it. He's just going to kind of watch as Anakin is frustrated with the situation. And I see, I take this to his, the fact that he's totally okay with her disobeying, I think would also kind of lend credence to the idea that this this is an Anakin issue at at the heart of it. Yeah. So, yeah, like Holocon Heist, I think they've they've given us a really good, uh, you know, infiltration sequence. This place is actually very difficult to get into. Like they have to like climb a cliff that's covered with these uh, these mines, and a guy which is falls. a really cool sequence. Yeah, and then one of the guys falls, and then basically a- after that, one of the mines blows up, they enti- they're they're done for. They're just basically spending the last next three episodes running away, um, you know, barely surviving. Yeah, I love how like it, the plan feels so precise and so orderly at first. You know, like we do this, and then we have to do this, and then like you know, like like in real life if a misstep happens, you know, it's almost improvisation from here on out. Yeah. Um, there's like, there's loose th- like ideas and things that have to be done. Um, and so it, it, they kind of tie it back to the aforementioned plan, but really it is kind of like, okay, well that didn't go right. 
I guess we got to do this. And it's, um, it feels like they're playing defense or not defense, but they're <laughs> playing run for your life. <laughs> yeah. Up against the wall from there on out. And so they, they rescue up Peel. And then he says, I only memorized half the information. The rest of the information is with the captain who turns out to be Moff Tarkin. Dun, dun, dun. And he's <laughs> every as much of a jerk as you remembered. He, the, I really like the design of him here. And, you know, you get a brief glimpse of Tarkin at the end of Revenge of the Sith uh, as as Vader and the Emperor look out at the uh, the new Death Star being built. He, You can see him kind of approach the Emperor and whisper something and walk away. And this design for him in the Clone Wars uh, feels very much in line with, with this younger Moff Tarkin. And the actor, Stephen Stanton, that uh, voices him, does a great job, you know, getting peter cushing's very uh unique um voice that completely sounds like a younger tarkin that just down to like the way he pronunciates individual things and he's got that perfect like rolling of the r's down um also plays your favorite character colonel gascon yeah we'll talk about that uh yeah and so and i like that his even now you see how kind of ruthless and precise his character is you know he he has a he doesn't like the jedi simply because the jedi have a moral code and that that moral code keeps them from you know doing whatever is necessary for victory so he's he, he's he said he's he's been petitioning the government to you know basically give the military its own control and not be placed under the under the command of the the um the jedi and anakin you know ever the fascist is you know they're agreeing with the millionaire. You know the Jedi. You know, the Jedi code stops us from doing whatever it takes to to get achieve victory. And him and Tarkin, you know, get along really well. However, one thing I don't like about Tarkin is that he just spends the entire time whining. Like, like I get not trusting, not entirely trusting the Jedi and being annoyed at some of their procedure. However, they did just rescue you. You're wandering around a hostile planet. You know, trying to get out alive. I don't see how someone who's you know political enough to become you know, to get to the position he does would ever get there if he really, literally spends the entire time whining like a toddler whenever anything doesn't go his way. Yeah, I thought the foreshadowing was a bit heavy-handed here um, because, you know, I do think when it comes to, like, military and operations like that, like, they are very... He and Anakin are like-minded, you know, even back to episode two with the aggressive negotiations and, you know, someone should make them. Um you can completely see why someone with the mindset of Targon here would be someone that Anakin would gravitate towards. However, at this stage in Anakin's life, he's also very close to several members of the Jedi Order and, you know, has huge amounts of camaraderie with all of these clones. And so to have uh, Targon just consistently demean and uh, dismiss them, it really feels like despite their agreements, that would really rub Anakin the wrong way. And yet, at the end, it feels like there's like a mutual, almost friend, like borderline friendship by the end of the episode. And I just don't feel like that that would happen with where Anakin is at here, based on on Tarkin's very like whiny and um, very aggressive and hostile demeanor towards you know people that Anakin is very close with at this time. Yeah, especially Soka. And like, if Tarkin has somehow used his philosophy and and strategizing to prove himself to prove himself right on this mission then i could see like him being so impressed with them but just the fact that they agree once or twice 
it seems weird to lead to that huge amount of respect they have for each other at the end. But again, something that I do really like, and this is just something I love about being like constantly expanding the Star Wars universe is, you know, this character originally just started as a really cool one-off villain. Like, I mean, I think everybody, anybody who's a fan of Star Wars is probably just a, a huge fan of his work in A New Hope. But but now we, like, you can almost chronicle his his life in a pretty cool way where we see, you know, his his early work as a captain and he's later promoted um, later on in the series. And then, you know, seeing his his involvement, like him being so close with the Emperor at the, the end of Revenge of the Sith and then, of course, Rogue One, just establishing, you know, how he came into control of the Death Star. There's just so much history behind the character now leading into A New Hope. It's it's so much fun to watch chronologically now. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the next episode is a counterattack directed by Brian Kalen O'Connell. Um, so they, in this one, you know, they've pretty much mucked everything up. And they're this one is basically them running in circles, trying to get away from, uh, from Ozzy Sobek. And... I think this this suffers a bit from the same problems that we had in in the the, the Mortis trilogy, where it feels like we're kind of padding time. Like it's it's never nearly as bad, but I feel like you pro- this probably could have been a two episode arc. It would have been just as good. Like I, I don't know, we need so much time. You're running in the caves and going back to the landing platform, then running back into the caves and being attacked by dogs, then being attacked by droids, and then finally this last stand. Like, I don't know we needed all those different movements. It does feel a little tedious towards the end. It's it's all it's quite good, but I feel like it would probably would have been improved if it was just two episodes. Yeah, I, I think the one thing that I, because I agree, um, just most of recent, like, watch through, I, you do kind of notice, uh, I think they get a lot better in season four and five, other than maybe one or two arcs in particular, but they really get uh, great at, at fully utilizing all of their time. Um, but the saving grace here for me is I, I really love the vision. The, the aesthetic of the Citadel feels very Death Star-like with mm-hmm. the holding cells and the lighting and everything like that. Um, and then just Tarkin being there as we walk through him helps. Uh, but also it, it I, I like elongating it because it really does feel like this huge mission and we're able to spend a lot of time with these individual people and this individual conflict. Uh, so even whenever the the time feels like it's getting a little bit long-winded, um, it's just cool to have this this huge story that feels, you know, I think three of these episodes run very well together. Um, mm-hmm. You know, sometimes uh, arcs, whether it's just because <laughs> the episodes were seasons apart or just different directors with different visions, like, Sometimes arcs feel very dis- like um, the episodes feel almost too distinct from each other. But here, I feel like this whole thing runs very seamlessly. Uh, you could just probably cut off the the credits and just air it as one big episode, and it would work fine. Yeah, that's something they really seem to be experimenting with in season three. That they go in season five and six, they're all four episode arcs written by one person, and so they they really feel like one single story. In season one and two, most of the arcs were written by multiple people. And the good thing it did was like when you have the uh, the the Geno's invasion arc, you get four distinct genres, and that was awesome. Downside is sometimes the arcs, as you said, feel like each episode is complete, its own story. Then we're at the next story, and even though they're yeah they're technically the same story, they they, they don't feel like that. Here you can see them starting on that with, with Mortis with here. 
they do really feel like they're trying. They're, they're only three episodes. But they do feel like they're trying to put more focus and time into the stories. And, you know, with, with any growing pains, it doesn't always work out perfectly. Yeah. But again, you know, even with the fact that I do have criticisms, like my criticism with, with this arc in particular is pretty minor because I actually really am a fan of, of almost everything here. Yeah. And it's interesting you mentioned that this feels big. I almost feel the opposite. I, I, I feel a huge sense of claustrophobia. Not, this. not big in terms of scale, just um, big in that it, it feels cinematic. Like, okay, I, it it almost feels like you could have convinced me that you know as as these were aired, they were like, okay, we've got here's a a straight to TV movie, you know, like this is just three episodes in one arc, and it feels like a major, uh, like you could have marketed this as as an event. Hmm. Uh, but I do like it, it feels claustrophobic and it feels very, very focused. But just in terms of the way it's portrayed, it, it feels like they're putting a lot of emphasis. Uh, and we have we have three episodes to focus on on these clones and and these dynamics. And so it feels much more intentionally. Um, and I get I keep using the word cinematic, but it it feels like a bigger deal, even though. Physically, we are contained and we are. Uh, focusing on a very narrow story. Yeah, and, and one thing I think that helps with the claustrophobia is that the yellow uh, lava, it just gives it all this very distinct look. And there's so much time is spent in caves and we're constantly cutting back to Sobek as he's watching the monitors and he's tracking them down and he's always one step away from like surrounding and trapping them. You, it just, it gets under your skin. I think the, 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 the yellow lava, the lighting for that helps a lot, but just something about by the end of that third episode, it's just, it's, it's, if you've, if you've watched, sat down and watched them all in one sitting, it just gets under your skin. You just want to leave. Yeah. That's, that's what works. Oh, sorry. Yeah. That, that's what works so well in these longer arcs, especially if you do sit down and like view them all in one sitting is when the art direction is really good. And I think it is really good here. You're able to establish a tone and atmosphere and, you know, milk it for all it's worth for three full episodes to fully make your mark. I think that's why arcs like this um, and then the the Umbara arc in season four, like arcs that have like very, very memorable visual aesthetic um, and atmosphere that's consistent across multiple episodes. They really end up sticking with me so that whenever I just think of the Clone Wars in general, I just have those visuals that pop up in my mind. Yeah. You know, uh, one very sad thing that happens in this episode is that we lose Echo. Um, he you know, he grabs up one of those uh, really cool uh, droid shields and goes to try to save the ship, but it blows up, and then we see his smoking helmet, and we all cry. I, th- I think that just leaves us with fives now um, from our original squad. Like, uh, cut up, dies by the eel, heavy blows himself up. Yeah. Now Echo. Mm. I can't even think about fives right now. I'm going to cry. <laughs> All right. We'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. Um, so that happens. Um, but th- those droids shields are really cool. They remind me a lot of the uh, the jackals from Halo. Yeah. That's what I thought of as well. Uh, then we moved to Citadel Rescue, which is directed by Stuart Lee. And this one, they're, it's basically entirely them running through the caves and the, with the uh, droids and their tails. And they release uh, Anubas. I, I'm I'm guessing they're named and designed after Anubis, which is the Egyptian god uh, with the canine head. Because basically, the shape of the head looks like that, and they're uh, 
the, the name. So I'm assuming that's what they're named after. But they're these really scary, gruesome jackal-like things with this giant tooth in the center of their jaw. Yeah, a very striking image. Yeah, and uh, they they catch up, and Evan Peel is killed. Um, before he dies, he gives Ahsoka the information, and they stop to give him a Boromir funeral, which, I mean, I don't want to sound like Tarkin, but this doesn't seem like very wise uh, time allotment. But he's a very cool character, and I think, you know, with the with the, the like the ponytail and the scars and everything, like just giving him that that thick accent only adds to to the cool visuals. Yeah, I think he can match uh, uh, Mace Windu for sheer toughness. Like when uh, so back in episode, the second episode when Sobek's threatening to kill the uh, clones, he's like, "They're soldiers. They all signed up for this." And he's like, "Whoa, that's cold." Yeah, but what I you know what I like about it is. It's cold, but just like the military kind of like that's what we're here for. Kind of cold, yeah, not, not particularly uncaring. Yes, yeah, really cool character. And then they end up on this tiny little island in the middle of the lava, and uh, they get they're under attack. And Sobek leads the attack, and he almost kills Tarkin, but Sobek kills him. His death felt very anticlimactic for how effective of uh, and like omnipresent of a villain he had been for the entire time. It felt really kind of deflating how easily he was offed so the the only reason that i was okay with that is it almost felt like you know so long as he's behind the screen you know he he kind of always had throughout the entire arc he feels like he had the upper hand Uh, but the second he's actually there you know he's just kind of killed on the spot unceremoniously and it kind of worked for me okay yeah i I like there's another thing i forgot to mention I i like how Every seems like every five minutes is Duke who is calling, demanding a status report, and he's like, you know, "Don't ever, don't ever surprise you with a message from Duke." And he's just like trying to keep the situation together because he knows if he fails, he's dead. And Duku's like constantly breathing down his neck. Yeah, that's one of the things that I love that the series did for for Duku is, you know, as a character, I guess his most prominent role in the series is as leader um, of the of the Separatists. But because of how little we actually spend in the Clone Wars, you know, he's the leader of this army that we see making it like in, in a battle at the end of one film and then at the very beginning of the other. Um, but this, we really get to see that, you know, whether he's giving orders to Grievous, as he often does, or to uh, Asajj, now to him, and then just to several um, other uh, characters throughout like the i forget his name lot don i believe the uh the, the Nimordian, Nimordian? or you know who or yes him as well um the one who stayed behind for the treasure on ryloth uh wat tambor wat tambor yeah the techno union um you would just see his his involvement and it really just is as this figure that's keeping watch over all of these different people and like just this ever-present figurehead over all these different moving pieces. Yeah, so uh, Plo Koon and Stacey Tin launch an, a, basically an all-out invasion of the planet. I like that all of this, in the end, just comes down to a tiny bit of information. Like, all this, this effort and lives and just mil- sheer military effort was all just for this tiny bit of intelligence that may, you know, may or may not be an effective piece of the war. And it, it ends on an interesting note with... Tarkin will only t- give his half of the information to Palpatine, and Ahsoka will only give her half of the information to the Jedi Council. And I'm I'm not 
entirely sure what they're like, what's they're trying to say with that. I mean, it could be simple as they're foreshadowing to season five, which I, I, I would buy, but it, it was just, it seemed like they, they kind of made a big deal out of it. Then it just kind of is blown over and no one, and it, it doesn't actually seem to go anywhere. Yeah. I don't think that moment is meant to really like be a significant moment, just kind of a, a reminder of, of the relationship between the two factions, or at least, uh, the perception of the relationship that that some on both sides may have, where with with Tarkin, you know, he's made it very clear. Other than Anakin, he doesn't particularly have a lot of respect for the Order, and and there's already all of this distrust. I mean, it seems like the the Jedi Council are constantly um, at odds with something that Pal or that Palpatine is doing, and so it just seems to be planting seeds of distrust between the, the two factions or at least acknowledging the seeds that may already be there. And if anything, it's, it might actually be playing into, into Tarkin's argument that the, having this third party with various loyalties is just, is just one more roadblock in the path of an effective army, an effective cohesive army. If you have to, if you have some, some of the soldiers are only loyal to this one institution and you can't. There's no quick dispersal of information. It has to go through these various sources. It could be like you know, it's 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 a it's a, it's blocking it from being an, as effective a war machine as it could have been. And so, next episode is Padawan Lost, and it, this one is directed by Dave Filoni, and this this arc is by Bonnie Mark. While fighting on Felucia with Anakin Plo Koon, and Plo Koon, Ahsoka is kidnapped by a Trandoshan uh, slaver and dumped on a moon to be hunted down for sport. And then the Star Wars version of the most dangerous game later ensues. Yeah, that or our, or Predator. Yeah, also. Which Predator is probably a version of the most dangerous game. <laughs> yeah, so this one is very interesting. I, I, I hear there's a lot about uh, Trandoshans in the EU. And they, they did stuff similar to this, like going on Wookiee hunts and whatnot. Yeah, either way, I think they're a really cool or <laughs> creepy addition to this uh, to the galaxy as far as the, the, the cinematic galaxy. It is the, the, this incredibly vicious warlike race, and they literally kidnap people and dump them on a, on a planet so they can go and hunt them for sport. And they seem like very tribalistic. Like this whole thing surrounding kind of like this some kind of initiation for a uh, young Dar, which is the chief's son. Um, Dar's throne room. If you look like everywhere you look, there's some creature that you know, just their head or their pelt. Like there's a Gunkin heads, the Wampas, there's a whole a whole wall of Wookiee pelts. Is that that big bull creature from a you know bull slash rhinoceros from Attack of the Clones? There's like all kinds of stuff in there. Yeah, I think my favorite thing about these two episodes possibly could just be the visuals, um, the lighting. When we get to, I forget the planet is that the, that they take them to. Um, I don't think it's given a name. I think it's just okay. some moon. The the lighting there with you know they're constantly under trees, and so we just get they're they're almost always under like just shadows and leaves and things like that. Um, and the coloring where everything is very tannish and wood uh, woodland um, in its color palette, it just it looks so good. Um, and we really get in very, very closely with a lot of characters and the facial expressions are great. And there, there are just some moments where we see the Trandoshans just kind of rear back and they reveal their teeth. It's so just the color of them on these huge trees with the sun shining through and their own skin color. It, it looks gorgeous throughout both of these episodes. 
Yeah, and did this remind you of like of Mirkwood? Like the whole the whole jungle feels like sick. There's this really oppressive feeling about it. The plants have these like giant thorns and these insects running around. But it, it reminded me a lot of uh, how Jackson's vision for Mirkwood. Yeah, just a lot, huge bulking trees with twisting limbs and roots and things like that. Yeah, and that one that one composition where they're they're going back to their hideout and they're framed against the moon. Oh, it, it's awesome. It doesn't even feel like it belongs to a TV so, TV show. It's so gorgeous. Yeah, and it it feels you know something that the show gets really good at. Like it's starting to really shine here, especially like in the the Camino attack and and here, and then even more so later on is. The scale, it feels like, you know, proportionally and, and the the wide angles, it feels like these are very cinematic looking shots. Uh, I, I've always liked the cinematography of this series, even going back to season one. There's just something about it here where, like you said, it, it feels weird that we're watching like this animated show when you have beautiful frames like that. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is Ahsoka runs into a group of three uh, Padawans, a human, a Twi'lek, and one whatever Kiyadi Mundi is. Um, and so they've been there for, I think, years, just hiding and running. And her being Anakin's apprentice, she kind of rallies them together to fight back. I, l- I really like when they actually fight the trained oceans that they are they are absolutely no match for these guys. Like, the 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 strength of these characters of them of these creatures, like if they get your hands on you, you're done. So the, the, every one of these fights is there's like there's quite a few times that they start grappling with the Trandoshans, and every one of them is so stressful because you know like as soon as they grab you, it's over. So they have to kind of rely on their martial arts skills and agility, and it, it's, they it feels very brutal and dangerous. Like and like every every victory feels really hard won. It almost reminds me like if if you've ever seen just like nature videos of something like a Komodo dragon, this really just feels like a Komodo dragon given intelligence and being able to stand upright where, you know, as soon as they get their prey um, in any way, like just a grip or, you know, to get their mouth around it, it's over. And they're just their strength and muscle, like it, they completely have an advantage over whatever it is they're wrestling with. And that's what it felt like, where it's just these forces of nature almost um that sometimes it doesn't even feel like you're trying to beat you're just trying to escape and, and survive yeah and, and it, you really get that feeling of depression and hopelessness like these the, you this is simply beyond you and i feel like that feeling is is like underlined and strengthened just by con- like by jumping back to anakin um because there's been multiple episodes where Anakin or Ahsoka, one of the like, are separated from the other, and you know it's that fight to try to reunite the two. Uh, but there's always been like that tease of hope before, where we know his last location, we know we, we've got at least one lead, we've got something, so we know what to do. And what struck me watching it this time was, you know, we know where she was taken, but we have absolute like in a. We have, we have no clues or anything that would lead us to where we should go, really. Um, and as Anakin is reminded by Plo, because he, he almost thinks that Plo is telling him, you know, just give up on Ahsoka. And ultimately, he's just saying, you know, have hope and, and faith in her. And it's just like, that's the first time Anakin's ever been in a situation where he has no real ability to act. And he's forced to just wait and rely on someone else completely. 
because there's there's the trail is cold and there's absolutely nothing to go on. Yeah, I, I feel so bad for Anakin in this just because you know how much he attaches himself to these people and how he always has to maintain control and be he has to be able to save them. And here, she's just gone. And it's it's a big galaxy. And you know, what can he do? There, there's no clues, there's no leads. So he's just like he's we cut back to him a couple times and he's just tearing himself apart because he's so helpless. And I like how Plo kind of comes in and is trying to comfort him, like, you know, what are her strengths? What ha- what have you taught her? If if she is a good worthy apprentice, maybe she maybe she can find her own way. Maybe like this this isn't something that's within your control. And I love how going to the ending, when he comes to her and he's like, this is like broken mess. Like I'm so sorry. And she's like, for what? You trained me, and you know, everything you gave me is what I used to survive. And there's that beautiful moment where she, where she's like, she goes like. Thank you, Master. And he goes like, and I pat a wand. And they walk off side by side. And it's crazy. Like, this is the, it feels like the first time each side is completely come to terms with their role as Padawan and Master. And yet, they've never felt more like equals than they do in that moment. Yeah, it reminds me, or not reminds like, I guess it's the, the difference between this is what reminded me of, of, um, they're, they're reuniting on the, um, the blue shadow virus where you know she survived because of her own cunning due to things that you know lessons that he gave her and everything and and as they get back you know they kind of instantly fall back into that like oh you know you did most of the work but uh like i, I did about 70 percent of it but that means that you did 30 like kind of still that joking one-upsmanship but here it just it feels like full acknowledgement of you have trained me to do this. I was the one who fully did it. And they're just perfectly at ease with with everything about the situation now that it's in the rear view. Yeah, it ends the season on such a warm, glowing note before the galaxy goes to hell. Yeah, we needed it. Yeah, so back, back to where we were. Um, so they they, uh, they fight and um, she uh, she kills young Darsh. She like, kicks him off and he falls and impales himself on a root. And Khalifa is shot. And so the, the next episode, they, they decide to continue the fight and they take down the uh, the drop ship that's dropping people, that's dropping the prisoners. And it's, whoa, is that a Wookiee? We find a young Chewbacca, which I didn't need to be Chewbacca, but uh, it's cool that it is. Like, I think this would have been just as cool if it was just a Wookiee. But uh, I, I do like what I do like what we get with him. Like, and when we finally get him, it's so cool that moment when they go to take out the sniper and he's got he's got uh, the kid, Imundi kid, on the ground, and then Chewbacca comes and grabs his arm, and just the relief when you finally realize we can match them strength for strength for strength. Uh, we can match them strength for strength. It has been so ingrained, even though it's only been like an episode and a half, that these people are no match for them in hand to hand combat. And then finally having someone there who can actually beat the crap out of a Trandoshan by themselves is just it feels so good. Yeah, and you know, like you said, it, it, it's not necessary that it's Chewbacca, but I, I like that it is, um, and I really love his entrance, like him emerging from the shadow, and you've got that very familiar theme playing, um, and I like it because it works as just like a reminder to to this character and just a, an acknowledgement of 
of how beloved he is, but it also works just as a reveal. Like if you're watching this for the first time, I don't know who out there is, other, you know, parents introducing Star Wars to their kids. Maybe they are going through it chronologically and it feels like an introduction to someone who's really going to be important. Uh, so I think it works both ways. And then, yeah, it's just, I think he really looks uh, really cool with these, uh, this like the aesthetic of the show. Um, and yeah, they use him in really cool ways. And so um, what they do is that they create a um, transmitter and they call the Wookiee, the rest of the Wookiees, but they don't know it works. So they, they go on this final attack. They, they steal a ship and they go on this final attack of the, um, the enemy's citadel, which is this giant ship floating in the clouds, which is a really cool visual. And they're going and they fight and they're pretty much beaten. And then Wookiees fall out of the sky and it's awesome. And they kick a lot of butt. And it's actually, it's the, uh, it's the uh, B team of the Bounty Hunters, which that uh, Zabrak lady from Bounty Hunters, which is really cool. Yeah. That's a uh, cool, it's just like mining from their own. Like not only are they able to like bring back characters like Chewbacca and Tarkin and things like that, but now we've got our own like Clone Wars specific characters that we can sprinkle in here. And it's just cool seeing you know, full-grown Wookiee warriors go at it. And by this time, you're like, I just kill all of these guys. You hate them. You hate them just as much as the Padawans do. Yeah. So finally, in the end, she she follows Dar into his uh, his throne room. And I really love the atmosphere. It's like kind of this haziness and it's all filmed in Dutch angles. She's trying. She's like sneaking around trying to find him. And then there's this really cool brawl before she throws him out the door and over the edge. And like there, you really feel it. Almost feels like, like a version of the Jedi trials for her. Like when she comes out after she's thrown him over the edge, and she kind of comes out, and all the Wookies look up at her. And she's kind of framed in the light. Yeah, and I love their showdown there. This one almost feels like you know it's coming off the heels of, of two different. Or actually, no. We I mean we had the, the Night Sisters arc and. Um, the Mortis and, and Citadel. It's weird, you know, those are all more than two episodes and here we have two, but it really feels like it told just as complete of a story. Um, yeah. And what really make, gives that feeling for me is that when we actually do get to that showdown and, you know, it's personal for her because she's being hunted as, as if she's just an animal and it's personal for him he, because he killed Khalifa. Yeah. And, and he killed Khalifa. And, and then, you know, she of course killed uh, his son. It feels like, an event like this the showdown that we have been building towards uh and it's crazy to think you know these are 20 minute episodes so really we've only got you know less than actually like 40 minutes of story behind us but it feels like we've built this so much to where yes uh the the camera angles like you say it, it feels like it's accentuating a very important moment in this story uh and i just think that's really impressive that they, that they were able to create such a full well-rounded story here and just two in a uh, two episode arc yeah and I, I like how, you know, younger Ahsoka probably would have tried to apologize or something about killing his son, but like <laughs> she doesn't care. So, you know, he made his choice. He deserved what he got. Yeah. And then just to talk a little bit about Ahsoka here, you know, comparing her here from where she was at season one, it's very clear that all like the creative people behind this down to, you know, George Lucas are all very passionate about this character where, you know, she her story is the finale to this season, and I think she's completely earned it by this point. Uh, I don't think we mentioned it. She just looks cool now, like with her uh, her additional blade. I love her fighting style with with holding one lightsaber regularly and the other one with the blade behind. 
it just it looks so cool and it's a fighting style completely unique and distinct to her uh, and they actually have her in like a cool looking like wardrobe um, where she actually does look like a, a an actual warrior yeah i forgot i forgot to mention that earlier that she's they've they up, updated her wardrobe i think back in uh, pursuit of peace like I, I never liked her original uh, costume; it just felt weird for a teenager. But the the one she has now, I think, is, is really cool looking, and like you can see, like she's grown. Like her montrals are kind of more uh, distinct. Like you can, they've changed the design. And she actually looks; she looks like she's several years older than she was when she first started. Yeah, and I noticed that on that episode too. And I went back to to see if if that had happened this entire season. But you you know you can trace it back to to that episode, Pursuit of Peace. Um, and the reason I stopped and looked at it, because I, I was looking at her in that episode, and I was like, you know, I know she's the same species, but I'm, she there's something about her that just reminds me a lot more of Shock T now. And it was that, you know, um, whatever, whatever is like those the tendrils and the crown thing, they have they have grown more. Um, and so, it you know, she looks like she's becoming more like these other characters that we've seen because, you know, we were just introduced to her so early on. And it, it it makes sense happening at the uh, that that specific arc where she's you know it's her and Padme, and her world is being opened up. You know she's finding out that the separatists aren't all you know these evil monsters, and it feels like from then on, she she's far more aware of the world around her. So it, I think it's pretty fitting that it happened at that arc, and and here like with, with the end of this episode, well, it's kind of it it's. Her, the arc of her growing up and becoming separate from Anakin, is kind of happens across the Citadel and here. Like, as I said, it feels like the way that 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 tension in the 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 Citadel arc is played out and leading into here, till finally at the end they they've come to this place of total respect for each other, and it seems that Anakin doesn't you know view her anymore as simply this extension of himself. He views her as her own, you know, her own fully capable warrior and, and Jedi. Yeah. And it, it's such a satisfying note to end this, um, this season out on, especially considering how freaking annoying she was at the beginning, just to see how far she's come before we, uh, before we close out. Uh, what are you, what are your thoughts on the season overall? And in comparison to the first two, um, so I'm having a really difficult time in, in ranking these just because their highs and lows are so different to me. Um, because I, I really, you know, do have... There are some lows in this season. I feel like there were a bit of time in this episode where we were really kind of harping on things that, that we weren't huge fans of. Uh, I think the the thing that uh that may make this make me view this season differently than than a lot of the fans is because for many, you know, the Mortis trilogy is just something that they absolutely love. And because it doesn't work nearly as well for me as most, I think that kind of changes changes the way i look at the season as a whole um and i really don't like the original uh, the initial um corruption arc however i think the second half of this um well i guess from uh not the entireties of the second half but the the night sisters arc and then citadel to the end is pretty much you know the best the series has um uh, has been so i get all three of these in a lot of ways seem to be pretty pretty on on par with each other um with this one maybe having the highest of highs with just going from 
the the citadel arc which i really liked a lot and into this very very strong finale for ahsoka who's who's becoming one of my favorite characters at this point in the series yeah this series doesn't doesn't quite have like a ryloth arc or a, a land at point rain arc and it does have like the the lows there are a lot of lows and some of them are pretty bad like the first half of the season is pretty rocky however you said it does come together and there's a lot of great stuff it feels like they're really they're really trying new stuff like as we said they're, they're trying to experiment more with the longer more focused arcs and just the new elements they bring in just whatever i think about mortis i gotta give them props for at least trying and then they go to like to the Night Sisters and the Trandoshans. Like they're 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 really going all over the place. And they go to the, the Council of Huts. They're really trying a lot of new stuff. And it doesn't always work, but I think there's there's a lot of interesting things going on. I, I think I like season two a bit better overall. But uh yeah, there's there's definitely some cool stuff happening. And what are your top five episodes and your favorite arc? Um favorite arc would actually be probably for me, there's just something I really, really loved about the Citadel arc. Um I loved how complete it feels. Like I said, I think you could just cut out the ending credits and opening crawls and just make one consistent uh, or one full episode, like just a mini movie over it. Uh, I love the introduction to Tarkin and the aesthetic of the entire thing. It creates and sustains this really great um, atmosphere and mood throughout. Uh, the mission is really cool. It's a, being able to give like this heist and rescue mission a full three episodes is a lot of fun. So I, I think that was my favorite arc overall. Uh, that, that's a good one. Um, I think my, my favorite was uh, the Night Sisters. I didn't have the issues that you did. I just absolutely love everything about their edition. They're such a just weird and different edition to Star Wars. I think they really enrich it. And I just like the perspective we're given. Just the fact that we get to have Asajj Ventress become a fully-fledged character we get glimpses into Sith training and the Savage. It's just there's it's an entirely new perspective on Star Wars that we're given, and I think they're all the episodes are really they have a really interesting, creepy tone, and it it, it, it it's it's very heavy, but I, I think it's all very well done. Yeah, that that was a very close second for me. Um, I think the the thing that tipped it in the favor for Citadel is just because of how. It really just it it did feel like one complete story. Like were you to take out the um, the credits, I'd, I'd almost have a hard time like figuring out where one ends and one begins. And watching them all chronologically in in extended sittings, that one just really sticks out for me. Similarly to the way Umbara does. Um, for my top five, I would probably say. Um, and I'm I'm really not sure as to what the actual order is, so I'll just give the five in no particular order. Um, I really love heroes on both sides. Um, I think it's one of the most necessary episodes of the series, just in how it it changes the way we look at the war, and it gives a lot of credibility to the to the fact that you would have so many systems join the Federation when you really humanize them. Um, it makes the fall of the uh, of the separatists just as tragic as the fall of the republic you know both sides were duped by the exact same person uh, and both sides were completely in it and committed to the to their own cause uh, in very real and genuine ways so I, I think it's just it's really invaluable in terms of lore 
Um, the other one was uh, I really liked Pursuit of Peace. Um, just the very the espionage feel to it. Uh, it to me, it's, it's politics done at its best in, in the series. You know, we it's not too heavy handed and it's not obnoxious and you know it, it's got fun action beats. Yes, that's one of my favorite too. A very nice kind of claustrophobic political thriller. Yeah, and so I, I'm gonna have to give the the third one. It, it'd be a toss up between um, Monster and Mist of the Nights, or what is it? Not Mist of the Night Sisters, which which is of the Mist. Um, there's just something I like a lot about both of those episodes, and there's a little bit of overlap between the two, and there's highlights on both sides. Both of those are my list as well. Yeah, they're they're just really really cool episodes, um, and I I love the addition of Savage, and then I guess and and I would just I'm trying to keep it just to one episode product. The the other ones would be um, probably the first either the first episode in the Citadel arc or the second or the last or the last. Yeah, again, it's it's hard on that one. For me, just because they they all flow so well together, um, but it's okay. I just say it's one of those, um, and then lastly would be um, Wookie Hunt. I think I think it just I think it just barely edges out Padawan Lost, just because you know the the setting is already established, the premise is established. We can get right into the things, and I think just the ending between Anakin and Ahsoka is probably the strongest emotional character moment of the series at this point. Um, so it was a very satisfying finale for me. That is on my uh, list as well. Uh, the, the other two, I, I would be a toss up between overlords and um, arc troopers. I might be surprised, but I do like overlords. It, like just take it on its own. If I could just like erase the other two episodes from my mind and simply view it as the allegory presented there. I, I do like that idea. Um, and arc troopers is just, I like I like Beyond Comedian. I think there's a lot of cool action, and we get to see 99 and and our clone our favorite clones again. So yeah, that's a fun one. Yeah, Art Troopers was uh, was very close for me. I, I I'm like you. I love being able to spend more time on Camino. I just think it's visually it's one of the cooler locations in all of Star Wars, and I think they're able to beautifully render it um, in the series. And that last action sequence with those giant squid droids is just awesome. Yeah. All right. So that was season three, and it feels like. With each uh, you know successive season, that even though the the seasons are roughly the same length, it really does feel like the discussions are kind of growing in length. Just there seems to be so much, just so much more like real material and thematic and character uh, stuff to discuss in each episode, despite them being the exact same length. Yeah, as they more clearly define the the point of the show and create and develop these characters they're able to do it you know introductions are out of the way and we're really getting into the meat of it yeah at this point season five is probably gonna be a two-parter <laughs> oh dear so uh if you enjoy the show i'd like to ask you to please go and rate and review us on itunes uh five stars only and that would be very much appreciated and if you want to follow us you can like us on facebook we're there as franchise fatigue podcast and if you want to f- follow us on Twitter, we are there at Franchise Pod. And if you want to find our older episodes, we are at FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And where can people follow you, James? Uh, primarily just on uh, uh, Letterboxd is, is where I'm at most of the time outside of this podcast, just rating and reviewing films there. I'm there as J.L. Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. 
um, you can see uh, I'm, I'm addicted to creating lists. So you can see several of the controversial ones, I guess, that I've created there. <laughs> and I am also on Letterboxd and there's Gabriel Green. And I, I will occasionally tweet and I am there as Gabe A. Green. Next week, uh, obviously, we'll be going to season four. And and we will be doing chronological order again, though it's not nearly as important this time as it was uh, with this with this season. Uh, yeah, I, I cannot wait to talk about Umbara. That's going to be a full hour on its own. Yeah, my goodness. So until next week, we will see you in the next season. All is lost. The balance has been broken.